What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Introduction to The Country of the Blind and Other Stories This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Peter Yearsley The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells Introduction the enterprise of Messrs. T. Nelson and Sons, and the friendly accommodation of Messrs. Macmillan, render possible this collection in one cover of all the short stories by me that I care for anyone to read again, except for the two series of linked incidents that make up the bulk of the book called Tales of Space and Time. No short story of mine of the slightest merit is excluded from this volume. Many of very questionable merit find a place. It is an inclusive and not an exclusive gathering, and the task of selection and revision brings home to me with something of the effect of discovery that I was once an industrious writer of short stories, and that I am no longer anything of the kind. I have not written one now for quite a long time, and in the past five or six years I have scarcely made one a year. The bulk of the fifty or sixty tales from which this present three-and-thirty have been chosen dates from the last century. This edition is more definitive than I supposed when first I arranged for it. In the presence of so conclusive an ebb and cessation, an almost obituary manner seems justifiable. I find it a little difficult to disentangle the causes that have restricted the flow of these inventions. It has happened, I remark, to others as well as to myself, and in spite of the kindliest encouragement to continue from editors and readers. There was a time when life bubbled with short stories. They were always coming to the surface of my mind, and it is no deliberate change of will that has thus restricted my production. It is rather, I think, a diversion of attention to more sustained and more exacting forms. It was my friend C. L. Hind who set that spring going. He urged me to write short stories for the Pall Mall budget, 
and persuaded me by his simple and buoyant conviction that i could do what he desired there existed at that time only the little sketch the jilting of jane included in this volume at least that is the only tolerable fragment of fiction i find surviving from my pre lewis hind period but i set myself so encouraged to the experiment of inventing moving and interesting things that could be given vividly in the little space of eight or ten such pages as this and for a time i found it a very entertaining pursuit indeed mr hind's indicating finger had shown me an amusing possibility of the mind i found that taking almost anything as a starting point and letting my thoughts play about it there would presently come out of the darkness in a manner quite inexplicable some absurd or vivid little incident more or less relevant to that initial nucleus little men in canoes upon sunlit oceans would come floating out of nothingness incubating the eggs of prehistoric monsters unawares violent conflicts would break out amidst the flower-beds of suburban gardens i would discover i was peering into remote and mysterious worlds ruled by an order logical indeed but other than our common sanity the nineties was a good and stimulating period for a short story writer mr kipling had made his astonishing advent with a series of little blue-gray books whose covers opened like window-shutters to reveal the dusty sun-glare and blazing colours of the east mr barry had demonstrated what could be done in a little space through the panes of his window in thrums the national observer was at the climax of its career of heroic insistence upon lyrical brevity and a vivid finish and mr frank harris was not only printing good short stories by other people but writing still better ones himself in the dignified pages of the fortnightly review longman's magazine too represented a clientele of appreciative short story readers that is now scattered then came the generous opportunities of the yellow book and the national observer died only to give birth to the new review no short story of the slightest distinction went for long unrecognized the sixpenny popular magazines had still to deaden down the conception of what a short story might be to the imaginative limitation of the common reader and the maximum length of six thousand words short stories broke out everywhere kipling was writing short stories barry stevenson frank harris max beerbohm wrote at least one perfect one the happy hypocrite henry james pursued his wonderful and inimitable bent and among other names that occur to me like a mixed handful of jewels drawn from a bag are george street morley roberts george gissing ella darcy murray gilchrist e nesbitt stephen crane joseph conrad edwin Pugh, jerome k jerome kenneth graham arthur morrison marriott watson george moore grant allen george egerton henry harland pet ridge w w jacobs who alone seems inexhaustible i dare say i could recall as many more names with a little effort 
I may be succumbing to the infirmities of middle age, but I do not think the present decade can produce any parallel to this list, or, what is more remarkable, that the later achievements in this field of any of the survivors from that time, with the sole exception of Joseph Conrad, can compare with the work they did before 1900. It seems to me this outburst of short stories came not only as a phase in literary development, but also as a phase in the development of the individual writers concerned. It is now quite unusual to see any adequate criticism of short stories in English. I do not know how far the decline in short story writing may not be due to that. Every sort of artist demands human responses, and few men can contrive to write merely for a publisher's check and silence, however reassuring that check may be. A mad millionaire who commissioned masterpieces to burn would find it impossible to buy them. Scarcely any artist will hesitate in the choice between money and attention, and it was primarily for that last and better sort of pay that the short stories of the nineties were written. People talked about them tremendously, compared them and ranked them. That was the thing that mattered. It was not, of course, all good talk, and we suffered then, as now, from the a priori critic, just as nowadays he goes about declaring that the work of such and such a dramatist is all very amusing and delightful, but it isn't a play. So we had a great deal of talk about the short story, and found ourselves measured by all kinds of arbitrary standards. There was a tendency to treat the short story as though it was as definable a form as the sonnet, instead of being just exactly what any one of courage and imagination can get told in twenty minutes reading or so. It was either Mr. Edward Garnet or Mr. George Moore, in a violently anti-Kipling mood, who invented the distinction between the short story and the anecdote. The short story was Maupassant, the anecdote was damnable. It was a quite infernal comment in its way, because it permitted no defence. Fools caught it up and used it freely. Nothing is so destructive in a field of artistic effort as a stock term of abuse. Anyone could say of any short story, a mere anecdote, just as anyone can say, incoherent, of any novel or of any sonata that isn't studiously monotonous. The recession of enthusiasm for this compact, amusing form is closely associated in my mind with that discouraging imputation. One felt hopelessly open to a paralyzing and unanswerable charge, and one's ease and happiness in the garden of one's fancies was more and more marred by the dread of it. It crept into one's mind, a distress as vague and inexpugnable as a sea-fog on a spring morning, and presently one shivered and wanted to go indoors. It is the absurd fate of the imaginative writer that he should be thus sensitive to atmospheric conditions. But after one has died as a maker, one may still live as a critic, and I will confess I am all for laxness and variety in this as in every field of art. 
insistence upon rigid forms and austere unities seems to me the instinctive reaction of the sterile against the fecund it is the tired man with a headache who values a work of art for what it does not contain i suppose it is the lot of every critic nowadays to suffer from indigestion and a fatigued appreciation and to develop a self-protective tendency towards rules that will reject as it were automatically the more abundant and irregular forms but this world is not for the weary and in the long run it is the new and variant that matter i refuse altogether to recognize any hard and fast type for the short story any more than i admit any limitation upon the liberties of the small picture the short story is a fiction that may be read in something under an hour and so that it is moving and delightful it does not matter whether it is as trivial as a japanese print of insects seen closely between grass stems or as spacious as the prospect of the plain of italy from monte motorone it does not matter whether it is human or inhuman or whether it leaves you thinking deeply or radiantly but superficially pleased some things are more easily done as short stories than others and more abundantly done but one of the many pleasures of short story writing is to achieve the impossible at any rate that is the present writer's conception of the art of the short story as the jolly art of making something very bright and moving it may be horrible or pathetic or funny or beautiful or profoundly illuminating having only this essential that it should take from fifteen to fifty minutes to read aloud all the rest is just whatever invention and imagination and the mood can give a vision of buttered slides on a busy day or of unprecedented worlds in that spirit of miscellaneous expectation these stories should be received each is intended to be a thing by itself and if it is not too ungrateful to kindly and enterprising publishers i would confess i would much prefer to see each printed expensively alone and left in a little brown paper cover to lie about a room against the needs of a quite casual curiosity and i would rather this volume were found in the bedrooms of convalescents and in dentists parlours and railway trains than in gentlemen's studies i would rather have it dipped in and dipped in again than read severely through essentially it is a miscellany of inventions many of which were very pleasant to write and its end is more than attained if some of them are refreshing and agreeable to read i have now re-read them all and i am glad to think i wrote them i like them but i cannot tell how much the associations of old happinesses gives them a flavour for me i make no claims for them and no apology they will be read as long as people read them things written either live or die unless it be for a place of judgment upon academic impostors there is no apologetic intermediate state i may add that i have tried to set a date to most of these stories but they are not arranged in strictly chronological order h g wells end of introduction
Section One of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Jilting of Jane. As I sit writing in my study, I can hear our Jane bumping her way downstairs with a brush and dustpan. She used, in the old days, to sing hymn tunes, or the British national song for the time being, to these instruments but latterly she has been silent and even careful over her work time was when i prayed with fervour for such silence and my wife with sighs for such care but now they have come we are not so glad as we might have anticipated we should be indeed i would rejoice secretly though it may be unmanly weakness to admit it even to hear jane sing daisy or by the fracture of any plate but one of euphemia's best green ones to learn that the period of brooding has come to an end yet how we longed to hear the last of jane's young man before we heard the last of him jane was always very free with her conversation to my wife and discoursed admirably in the kitchen on a variety of topics so well indeed that i sometimes left my study door open our house is a small one to partake of it but after william came it was always william nothing but william william this and william that and when we thought william was worked out and exhausted altogether then william all over again the engagement lasted altogether three years yet how she got introduced to william and so became thus saturated with him was always a secret for my part i believe it was at the street corner where the reverend barnabas bow used to hold an open-air service after evensong on sundays young cupids were wont to flit like moths round the paraffin flare of that centre of high church hymn-singing i fancy she stood singing hymns there out of memory and her imagination instead of coming home to get supper and william came up beside her and said hello hello yourself she said and etiquette being satisfied they proceeded to talk together as euphemia has a reprehensible way of letting her servants talk to her she soon heard of him he is such a respectable young man ma'am said jane you don't know ignoring the slur cast on her acquaintance my wife inquired further about this william he is second porter at maynard's the drapers said jane and gets eighteen shillings nearly a pound a week mum and when the head porter leaves he will be head porter his relatives are quite superior people mum not labouring people at all his father was a greengrocer mum and had a churner and he was bankrupt twice and one of his sisters is in a home for the dying it will be a very good match for me, mum," said Jane. "Me being an orphan girl." "Then you are engaged to him?" asked my wife. "Not engaged, ma'am, but he is saving money to buy a ring, amethyst." "Well, Jane, when you are properly engaged to him, you may ask him round here on Sunday afternoons and have tea with him in the kitchen, for my Euphemia has a motherly conception of her duty towards her maidservants." And presently the amethystine ring was being worn about the house even with ostentation and jane developed a new way of bringing in the joint so that this gauge was evident the elder miss maitland was aggrieved by it 
and told my wife that servants ought not to wear rings but my wife looked it up in inquire within and mrs motherly's book of household management and found no prohibition so jane remained with this happiness added to her love the treasure of jane's heart appeared to me to be what respectable people call a very deserving young man william ma'am said jane one day suddenly with an ill-concealed complacency as she counted out the beer-bottles william ma'am is a teetotaler yes ma'am and he don't smoke smoking ma'am said jane as one who reads the heart do make such a dust about beside the waste of money and the smell however i suppose they got to do it some of them william was at first a rather shabby young man of the ready-made black coat school of costume he had watery grey eyes and a complexion appropriate to the brother of one in a home for the dying euphemia did not fancy him very much even at the beginning his eminent respectability was vouched for by an alpaca umbrella from which he never allowed himself to be parted he goes to chapel said jane his papa ma'am his what jane his papa ma'am was church but mr maynard is a plymouth brother and william thinks it policy ma'am to go there too mr maynard comes and talks to him quite friendly when they ain't busy about using up all the ends of string and about his soul he takes a lot of notice to mr maynard of william and the way he saves his soul ma'am presently we heard that the head porter at maynard's had left and that william was head porter at twenty-three shillings a week he is really kind of over the man who drives the van said jane and him married with three children and she promised in the pride of her heart to make interest for us with william to favour us so that we might get our parcels of drapery from maynard's with exceptional promptitude after this promotion a rapidly increasing prosperity came upon jane's young man one day we learned that mr maynard had given william a book smiles help yourself it's called said jane but it ain't comic it tells you how to get on in the world and somewhat william read to me was lovely ma'am euphemia told me of this laughing and then she became suddenly grave do you know dear she said jane said one thing i did not like she had been quiet for a minute and then she suddenly remarked william is a lot above me ma'am ain't he i don't see anything in that i said though later my eyes were to be opened one sunday morning about that time i was sitting at my writing-desk possibly i was reading a good book when a something went by the window i heard a startled exclamation behind me and saw euphemia with her hands clasped together and her eyes dilated george she said in an awe-stricken whisper did you see then we both spoke to one another at the same moment slowly and solemnly a silk hat yellow gloves a new umbrella it may be my fancy dear said euphemia but his tie was very like yours i believe jane keeps him in ties she told me a little while ago in a way that implied volumes about the rest of your costume the master do wear pretty ties ma'am and he echoes all your novelties the young couple passed our window again on their way to their customary walk they were arm in arm jane looked exquisitely proud 
happy and uncomfortable with new white cotton gloves and william in the silk hat singularly genteel that was the culmination of jane's happiness when she returned mr maynard has been talking to william ma'am she said and he is to serve customers just like the young shop gentleman during the next sale and if he gets on he is to be made an assistant ma'am at the first opportunity he has got to be as gentlemanly as he can ma'am and if he ain't ma'am he says it won't be for want of trying mr maynard has took a great fancy to him he is getting on jane said my wife yes ma'am said jane thoughtfully he is getting on and she sighed that next sunday as i drank my tea i interrogated my wife how is this sunday different from all other sundays little woman what has happened have you altered the curtains or rearranged the furniture or where is the indefinable difference of it are you wearing your hair in a new way without warning me i perceive a change clearly and i cannot for the life of me say what it is then my wife answered in her most tragic voice george she said that william has not come near the place to-day and jane is crying her heart out upstairs there followed a period of silence jane as i have said stopped singing about the house and began to care for our brittle possessions which struck my wife as being a very sad sign indeed the next sunday and the next jane asked to go out to walk with william and my wife who never attempts to extort confidences gave her permission and asked no questions on each occasion jane came back looking flushed and very determined at last one day she became communicative william is being led away she remarked abruptly with a catching of the breath apropos of tablecloths yes m'm she's a milliner and she can play on the piano i thought said my wife that you went out with him on sunday not with him m'm after him i walked along by the side of them and told her he was engaged to me dear me jane did you what did they do took no more notice of me than if i was dirt so i told her she should suffer for it it could not have been a very agreeable walk jane not for no parties ma'am i wish said jane i could play the piano ma'am but anyhow i don't mean to let her get him away from me she's older than him and her hair ain't gold to the roots ma'am it was on the august bank holiday that the crisis came we do not clearly know the details of the fray but only such fragments as poor jane let fall she came home dusty excited and with her heart hot within her the milliner's mother the milliner and william had made a party to the art museum at south kensington i think anyhow jane had calmly but firmly accosted them somewhere in the streets and asserted her right to what in spite of the consensus of literature she held to be her inalienable property she did i think go so far as to lay hands on him they dealt with her in a crushingly superior way they called a cab there was a scene william being pulled away into the four-wheeler by his future wife and mother-in-law 
from the reluctant hands of our discarded Jane. There were threats of giving her in charge. "'My poor Jane,' said my wife, mincing veal as though she were mincing William. "'It's a shame of them. I would think no more of him. He is not worthy of you.' "'No, mum,' said Jane. "'He is weak.' "'But it's that woman has done it,' said Jane. She was never known to bring herself to pronounce that woman's name, or to admit her girlishness. "'I can't think what minds some women must have to try and get a girl's young man away from her. But there, it only hurts to talk about it,' said Jane. Thereafter our house rested from William, but there was something in the manner of Jane's scrubbing the front doorstep or sweeping out the rooms, a certain viciousness that persuaded me that the story had not yet ended. "'Please, ma'am, may I go and see a wedding to-morrow?' said Jane one day. My wife knew by instinct whose wedding. "'Do you think it is wise, Jane?' she said. "'I would like to see the last of him,' said Jane. "'My dear,' said my wife, fluttering into my room about twenty minutes after Jane had started, Jane has been to the boot-hole, and taken all the left-over boots and shoes, and gone off to the wedding with them in a bag. Surely she cannot mean— Jane, I said, is developing character. Let us hope for the best. Jane came back with a pale, hard face. All the boots seemed to be still in her bag, at which my wife heaved a premature sigh of relief. We heard her go upstairs and replace the boots with considerable emphasis. "'Quite a crowd at the wedding, ma'am,' she said presently, in a purely conversational style, sitting in our little kitchen and scrubbing the potatoes. "'And such a lovely day for them!' She proceeded to numerous other details, clearly avoiding some cardinal incident. "'It was all extremely respectable and nice, ma'am, but her father didn't wear a black coat, and looked quite out of place, ma'am. Mr. Piddingquirk who mr piddingquirk william that was ma'am had white gloves and a coat like a clergyman and a lovely chrysanthemum he looked so nice ma'am and there was red carpet down just like for gentlefolks and they say he gave the clerk four shillings ma'am it was a real carriage they had not a fly when they came out of church there was rice throwing and her two little sisters dropping dead flowers and someone threw a slipper and then i threw a boot through a boot jane yes ma'am aimed at her but it hit him yes ma'am hard give him a black eye i should think i only threw that one i hadn't the heart to try again all the little boys cheered when it hit him after an interval i am sorry the boot hit him another pause the potatoes were being scrubbed violently he always was a bit above me you know ma'am and he was led away the potatoes were more than finished jane rose sharply with a sigh and rapped the basin down on the table i don't care she said i don't care a rap he will find out his mistake yet it serves me right i was stuck up about him i ought not to have looked so high and i'm glad things are as things are my wife was in the kitchen seeing to the higher cookery after the confession of the boot-throwing she must have watched poor jane fuming with a certain dismay in those brown eyes of hers. But I imagine they softened again very quickly, and then 
Jane's must have met them. Oh, ma'am, said Jane, with an astonishing change of note, think of all that might have been. Oh, ma'am, I could have been so happy. I ought to have known, but I didn't know. You're very kind to let me talk to you, ma'am, for it's hard on me, ma'am. It's hard. And I gathered that Euphemia so far forgot herself as to let Jane sob out some of the fullness of her heart on a sympathetic shoulder. My Euphemia, thank heaven, has never properly grasped the importance of keeping up her position, and since that fit of weeping much of the accent of bitterness has gone out of Jane's scrubbing and brushwork. Indeed, something passed the other day with the butcher-boy, but that scarcely belongs to this story. However, Jane is young still, and time and change are at work with her. We all have our sorrows, but I do not believe very much in the existence of sorrows that never heal. End of section one. Section two of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Cone. The night was hot and overcast, the sky red rimmed with the lingering sunset of midsummer. They sat at the open window, trying to fancy the air was fresher there. The trees and shrubs of the garden stood stiff and dark. Beyond, in the roadway, a gas-lamp burnt, bright orange against the hazy blue of the evening. Farther were the three lights of the railway signal against the lowering sky. The man and woman spoke to one another in low tones. "'He does not suspect,' said the man, a little nervously. "'Not he,' she said peevishly as though that too irritated her. He thinks of nothing but the works and the prices of fuel. He has no imagination, no poetry. None of these men of iron have, he said sententiously. They have no hearts. He has not, she said. She turned her discontented face towards the window. The distant sound of a roaring and rushing drew nearer and grew in volume. The house quivered, one heard the metallic rattle of the tender. As the train passed, there was a glare of light above the cutting, and a driving tumult of smoke. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight black oblongs, eight trucks, passed across the dim grey of the embankment, and were suddenly extinguished one by one in the throat of the tunnel, which, with the last, seemed to swallow down train, smoke, and sound, in one abrupt gulp. "'This country was all fresh and beautiful once,' he said, "'and now it is Gehenna, nothing but pot-banks, and chimneys belching fire and dust into the face of heaven. But what does it matter? An end comes, an end to all this cruelty. Tomorrow,' he spoke the last word in a whisper. "'Tomorrow,' she said, speaking in a whisper too and still staring out of the window. "'Dear,' he said, putting his hand on hers. She turned with a start, and their eyes searched one another's. Hers softened to his gaze. "'My dear one,' she said, and then, "'It seems so strange. 
that you should have come into my life like this to open she paused to open he said all this wonderful world she hesitated and spoke still more softly this world of love to me then suddenly the door clicked and closed they turned their heads and he started violently back in the shadow of the room stood a great shadowy figure silent they saw the face dimly in the half-light with unexpressive dark patches under the penthouse brows every muscle in rout's body suddenly became tense when could the door have opened what had he heard had he heard all what had he seen a tumult of questions the newcomer's voice came at last after a pause that seemed interminable well he said i was afraid i had missed you horrocks said the man at the window gripping the window ledge with his hand his voice was unsteady the clumsy figure of horrocks came forward out of the shadow he made no answer to rout's remark for a moment he stood above them the woman's heart was cold within her i told mr rout it was just possible you might come back she said in a voice that never quivered horrocks still silent sat down abruptly in the chair by her little work-table his big hands were clenched one saw now the fire of his eyes under the shadow of his brows he was trying to get his breath his eyes went from the woman he had trusted to the friend he had trusted and then back to the woman by this time and for the moment all three half understood one another yet none dared say a word to ease the pent-up things that choked them it was the husband's voice that broke the silence at last you wanted to see me he said to rout rout started as he spoke i came to see you he said resolved to lie to the last yes said horrocks you promised said rout to show me some fine effects of moonlight and smoke i promised to show you some fine effects of moonlight and smoke repeated horrocks in a colourless voice and i thought i might catch you to-night before you went down to the works proceeded rout and come with you there was another pause did the man mean to take the thing coolly did he after all know how long had he been in the room yet even at the moment when they heard the door their attitudes horrocks glanced at the profile of the woman shadowy pallid in the half-light then he glanced at rout and seemed to recover himself suddenly of course he said i promised to show you the works under their proper dramatic conditions it's odd how i could have forgotten if i am troubling you began rout horrocks started again a new light had suddenly come into the sultry gloom of his eyes not in the least he said have you been telling mr rout of all these contrasts of flame and shadow you think so splendid said the woman turning now to her husband for the first time her confidence creeping back again her voice just one half note too high that dreadful theory of yours that machinery is beautiful and everything else in the world ugly i thought he would not spare you mr rout it's his great theory his one discovery in art i am slow to make discoveries said horrocks grimly damping her suddenly but what i discover he stopped well she said nothing 
and suddenly he rose to his feet. I promised to show you the works, he said to Rout, and put his big clumsy hand on his friend's shoulder. And you are ready to go? Quite, said Rout, and stood up also. There was another pause. Each of them peered through the indistinctness of the dusk at the other two. Horrocks's hand still rested on Rout's shoulder. Rout half fancied still that the incident was trivial after all. But Mrs. Horrocks knew her husband better, knew that grim quiet in his voice, and the confusion in her mind took a vague shape of physical evil. Very well, said Horrocks, and dropping his hand, turned towards the door. My hat? Rout looked round in the half-light. That's my work-basket, said Mrs. Horrocks, with a gust of hysterical laughter. Their hands came together on the back of the chair. Here it is, he said. She had an impulse to warn him in an undertone, but she could not frame a word. Don't go, and beware of him, struggled in her mind, and the swift moment passed. Got it, said Horrocks, standing with the door half open. Rout stepped towards him. Better say good-bye to Mrs. Horrocks, said the ironmaster, even more grimly quiet in his tone than before. Rout started and turned. Good evening, Mrs. Horrocks, he said, and their hands touched. Horrocks held the door open with a ceremonial politeness unusual in him towards men. Rout went out, and then, after a wordless look at her, her husband followed. She stood motionless, while Rout's light footfall and her husband's heavy tread, like bass and treble, passed down the passage together. The front door slammed heavily. She went to the window, moving slowly, and stood watching, leaning forward. The two men appeared for a moment at the gateway in the road, passed under the street-lamp, and were hidden by the black masses of the shrubbery. The lamplight fell for a moment on their faces, showing only unmeaning pale patches, telling nothing of what she still feared and doubted, and craved vainly to know. Then she sank down into a crouching attitude in the big armchair, her eyes wide open and staring out at the red lights from the furnaces that flickered in the sky. An hour after she was still there, her attitude scarcely changed. The oppressive stillness of the evening weighed heavily upon Rout. They went side by side down the road in silence, and in silence turned into the cinder-made byway that presently opened out the prospect of the valley. A blue haze, half dust, half mist, touched the long valley with mystery. Beyond were Hanley and Etruria, grey and dark masses outlined thinly by the rare golden dots of the street lamps, and here and there a gaslit window, or the yellow glare of some late working factory or crowded public house. Out of the masses, clear and slender against the evening sky, rose a multitude of tall chimneys, many of them reeking, a few smokeless, during a season of play. Here and there a pallid patch, and ghostly stunted beehive shapes showed the position of a pot-bank, or a wheel, black and sharp against the hot lower sky, marked some colliery 
where they raise the iridescent coal of the place. Nearer at hand was the broad stretch of railway, and half-invisible trains shunted, a steady puffing and rumbling, with every run a ringing concussion and a rhythmic series of impacts, and a passage of intermittent puffs of white steam across the further view. And to the left, between the railway and the dark mass of the low hill beyond, dominating the whole view, colossal, inky black, and crowned with smoke and fitful flames, stood the great cylinders of the Jeddah Company blast furnaces, the central edifices of the great ironworks, of which Horrocks was the manager. They stood heavy and threatening, full of an incessant turmoil of flames and seething molten iron, and about the feet of them rattled the rolling mills, and the steam-hammer beat heavily and splashed the white iron sparks hither and thither. Even as they looked, a truck full of fuel was shot into one of the giants, and the red flames gleamed out, and a confusion of smoke and black dust came boiling upwards towards the sky. "'Certainly you get some colour with your furnaces,' said Rout, breaking a silence that had become apprehensive. Horrocks grunted. He stood with his hands in his pockets, frowning down at the dim, steaming railway, and the busy ironworks beyond, frowning as if he were thinking out some knotty problem. Rout glanced at him and away again. "'At present your moonlight effect is hardly ripe,' he continued, looking upward. "'The moon is still smothered by the vestiges of daylight.' Horrocks stared at him, with the expression of a man who has suddenly awakened. "'Vestiges of daylight? Of course, of course.' He, too, looked up at the moon, pale still, in the midsummer sky. "'Come along,' he said suddenly and, gripping Rout's arm in his hand, made a move towards the path that dropped from them to the railway. Rout hung back. Their eyes met, and saw a thousand things in a moment that their lips came near to say. Horrocks' hand tightened, and then relaxed. He let go, and before Rout was aware of it, they were arm in arm, and walking, one unwillingly enough, down the path. "'You see, the fine effect of the railway signals towards Burslem,' said Horrocks, suddenly breaking into loquacity, striding fast, and tightening the grip of his elbow the while. "'Little green lights and red and white lights, all against the haze. You have an eye for effect, Rout. It's fine. And look at those furnaces of mine, how they rise upon us as we come down the hill. That to the right is my pet.' Seventy feet of him. I packed him myself, and he's boiled away cheerfully with iron in his guts for five long years. I've a particular fancy for him. That line of red there, a lovely bit of warm orange, you'd call it, Rout. That's the puddler's furnaces, and there in the hot light. Did you see the white splash of the steam-hammer, then? That's the rolling mills. Come along. Clang, clatter. How it goes rattling across the floor. Sheet-tin route. Amazing stuff. Glass mirrors are not in it when that stuff comes from the mill. And squelch, there goes the hammer again. Come along. He had to stop talking to catch at his breath. His arm twisted into routes with benumbing tightness. 
he had come striding down the black path towards the railway as though he was possessed rout had not spoken a word had simply hung back against horrocks pull with all his strength i say he said now laughing nervously but with an undertone of snarl in his voice why on earth are you nipping my arm off horrocks and dragging me along like this at length horrocks released him his manner changed again nipping your arm off he said sorry but it's you taught me the trick of walking in that friendly way you haven't learnt the refinements of it yet then said rout laughing artificially again by jove i'm black and blue horrocks offered no apology they stood now near the bottom of the hill close to the fence that bordered the railway the ironworks had grown larger and spread out with their approach they looked up to the blast furnaces now instead of down the further view of etruria and hanley had dropped out of sight with their descent before them by the stile rose a notice-board bearing still dimly visible the words beware of the trains half hidden by splashes of coaly mud fine effects said horrocks waving his arm here comes a train the puffs of smoke the orange glare the round eye of light in front of it the melodious rattle fine effects but these furnaces of mine used to be finer before we shoved cones in their throats and saved the gas how oh, said rout cones cones my man cones i'll show you one nearer the flames used to flare out of the open throats great what is it pillars of cloud by day red and black smoke and pillars of fire by night now we run it off in pipes and burn it to heat the blast and the top is shut by a cone you'll be interested in that cone but every now and then said rout you get a burst of fire and smoke up there the cone's not fixed it's hung by a chain from a lever and balanced by an equipoise you shall see it nearer else of course there'd be no way of getting fuel into the thing every now and then the cone dips and out comes the flare i see said rout he looked over his shoulder the moon gets brighter he said come along said horrocks abruptly gripping his shoulder again and moving him suddenly towards the railway crossing and then came one of those swift incidents vivid but so rapid that they leave one doubtful and reeling halfway across horrocks's hand suddenly clenched upon him like a vice and swung him backward and threw a half turn so that he looked up the line and there a chain of lamp-lit carriage windows telescoped swiftly as it came towards them and the red and yellow lights of an engine grew larger and larger rushing down upon them as he grasped what this meant he turned his face to horrocks and pushed with all his strength against the arm that held him back between the rails the struggle did not last a moment just as certain as it was that horrocks held him there so certain was it that he had been violently lugged out of danger out of the way said horrocks with a gasp as the train came rattling by and they stood panting by the gate into the ironworks i did not see it coming said rout still even in spite of his own apprehensions trying to keep up an appearance of ordinary intercourse horrocks answered with a grunt the cone he said and then as one who recovers himself i thought you did not hear i didn't said rout 
i wouldn't have had you run over then for the world said horrocks for a moment i lost my nerve said rout horrocks stood for half a minute then turned abruptly towards the ironworks again see how fine these great mounds of mine these clinker heaps look in the night that truck yonder up above there up it goes and out tilts the slag see the palpitating red stuff go sliding down the slope as we get nearer the heap rises up and cuts the blast furnaces see the quiver up above the big one not that way this way between the heaps that goes to the puddling furnaces but i wanted to show you the canal first he came and took rout by the elbow and so they went along side by side rout answered horrocks vaguely what he asked himself had really happened on the line was he deluding himself with his own fancies or had horrocks actually held him back in the way of the train had he just been within an ace of being murdered suppose this slouching scowling monster did know anything for a minute or two then rout was really afraid for his life but the mood passed as he reasoned with himself after all horrocks might have heard nothing at any rate he had pulled him out of the way in time his odd manner might be due to the mere vague jealousy he had shown once before he was talking now of the ash heaps and the canal eh said horrocks what said rout rather the haze in the moonlight fine our canal said horrocks stopping suddenly our canal by moonlight and firelight is immense you've never seen it fancy that you've spent too many of your evenings philandering up in newcastle there i tell you for real florid quality but you shall see boiling water as they came out of the labyrinth of clinker heaps and mounds of coal and ore the noises of the rolling mill sprang upon them suddenly loud near and distinct three shadowy workmen went by and touched their caps to horrocks their faces were vague in the darkness rout felt a futile impulse to address them and before he could frame his words they passed into the shadows horrocks pointed to the canal close before them now a weird-looking place it seemed in the blood-red reflections of the furnaces the hot water that cooled the tuyer came into it some fifty yards up a tumultuous almost boiling affluent and the steam rose up from the water in silent white wisps and streaks wrapping damply about them an incessant succession of ghosts coming up from the black and red eddies a white uprising that made the head swim the shining black tower of the larger blast furnace rose overhead out of the mist and its tumultuous riot filled their ears rout kept away from the edge of the water and watched horrocks here it is red said horrocks blood-red vapour as red and hot as sin but yonder there where the moonlight falls on it and it drives across the clinker heaps it is as white as death rout turned his head for a moment and then came back hastily to his watch on horrocks come along to the rolling mills said horrocks the threatening hold was not so evident that time and rout felt a little reassured but all the same 
what on earth did horrocks mean about white as death and red as sin coincidence perhaps they went and stood behind the puddlers for a little while and then through the rolling mills where amidst an incessant din the deliberate steam-hammer beat the juice out of the succulent iron and black half-naked titans rushed the plastic bars like hot sealing-wax between the wheels come on said horrocks in rout's ear and they went and peeped through the little glass hole behind the tuyer and saw the tumbled fire writhing in the pit of the blast furnace it left one eye blinded for a while then with green and blue patches dancing across the dark they went to the lift by which the trucks of ore and fuel and lime were raised to the top of the big cylinder and out upon the narrow rail that overhung the furnace rout's doubts came upon him again was it wise to be here if horrocks did know everything do what he would he could not resist a violent trembling right underfoot was a sheer depth of seventy feet it was a dangerous place they pushed by a truck of fuel to get to the railing that crowned the thing the reek of the furnace a sulphurous vapour streaked with pungent bitterness seemed to make the distant hillside of hanley quiver the moon was riding out now from among a drift of clouds halfway up the sky above the undulating wooded outlines of newcastle the steaming canal ran away from below them under an indistinct bridge and vanished into the dim haze of the flat fields towards burslem that's the cone i've been telling you of shouted horrocks and below that sixty feet of fire and molten metal with the air of the blast frothing through it like gas in soda-water rout gripped the hand-rail tightly and stared down at the cone the heat was intense the boiling of the iron and the tumult of the blast made a thunderous accompaniment to horrocks voice but the thing had to be gone through now perhaps after all in the middle bawled horrocks temperature near a thousand degrees if you were dropped into it flash into flame like a pinch of gunpowder and a candle put your hand out and feel the heat of his breath why even up here i've seen the rain-water boiling off the trucks and that cone there it's a damn sight too hot for roasting cakes the top side of it's three hundred degrees three hundred degrees said rout three hundred centigrade mind said horrocks it will boil the blood out of you in no time eh said rout and turned boil the blood out of you in no you don't let me go screamed rout let go my arm with one hand he clutched at the handrail then with both for a moment the two men stood swaying then suddenly with a violent jerk horrocks had twisted him from his hold he clutched at horrocks and missed his foot went back into empty air in mid-air he twisted himself and then cheek and shoulder and knee struck the hot cone together he clutched the chain by which the cone hung and the thing sank an infinitesimal amount as he struck it a circle of glowing red appeared about him and a tongue of flame released from the chaos within flickered up towards him an intense pain assailed him at the knees and he could smell the singeing of his hands 
he raised himself to his feet and tried to climb up the chain and then something struck his head black and shining with the moonlight the throat of the furnace rose about him horrocks he saw stood above him by one of the trucks of fuel on the rail the gesticulating figure was bright and white in the moonlight and shouting fizzle you fool fizzle you hunter of women you hot-blooded hound boil 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 suddenly he caught up a handful of coal out of the truck and flung it deliberately lump after lump at rout horrocks cried rout horrocks he clung crying to the chain pulling himself up from the burning of the cone each missile horrocks flung hit him his clothes charred and glowed and as he struggled the cone dropped and a rush of hot suffocating gas whooped out and burned round him in a swift breath of flame his human likeness departed from him when the momentary red had passed horrocks saw a charred blackened figure its head streaked with blood still clutching and fumbling with the chain and writhing in agony a cindery animal an inhuman monstrous creature that began a sobbing intermittent shriek abruptly at the sight the ironmaster's anger passed a deadly sickness came upon him the heavy odour of burning flesh came drifting up to his nostrils his sanity returned to him god have mercy upon me he cried oh god what have i done he knew the thing below him save that it still moved and felt was already a dead man that the blood of the poor wretch must be boiling in his veins an intense realization of that agony came to his mind and overcame every other feeling for a moment he stood irresolute and then turning to the truck he hastily tilted its contents upon the struggling thing that had once been a man the mass fell with a thud and went radiating over the cone with the thud the shriek ended and a boiling confusion of smoke dust and flame came rushing up towards him as it passed he saw the cone clear again then he staggered back and stood trembling clinging to the rail with both hands his lips moved but no words came to him down below was the sound of voices and running steps the clangour of rolling in the shed ceased abruptly End of section two Section three of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Stolen Bacillus. This again, said the bacteriologist, slipping a glass slide under the microscope, is, well, a preparation of the bacillus of cholera, the cholera germ. The pale-faced man peered down the microscope. He was evidently not accustomed to that kind of thing, and held a limp white hand over his disengaged eye. "'I see very little,' he said. "'Touch this screw,' said the bacteriologist. "'Perhaps the microscope is out of focus for you. Eyes vary so much. Just the fraction of a turn, this way or that.' "'Ah, now I see,' said the visitor not so very much to see after all 
little streaks and shreds of pink and yet those little particles those mere atomies might multiply and devastate a city wonderful he stood up and releasing the glass slip from the microscope held it in his hand towards the window scarcely visible he said scrutinizing the preparation he hesitated are these alive are they dangerous now those have been stained and killed said the bacteriologist i wish for my own part we could kill and stain every one of them in the universe i suppose the pale man said that you scarcely care to have such things about you in the living in the active state on the contrary we are obliged to said the bacteriologist here for instance he walked across the room and took up one of several sealed tubes here is the living thing this is a cultivation of the actual living disease bacteria he hesitated bottled cholera so to speak a slight gleam of satisfaction appeared momentarily in the face of the pale man it's a deadly thing to have in your possession he said devouring the little tube with his eyes the bacteriologist watched the morbid pleasure in his visitor's expression this man who had visited him that afternoon with a note of introduction from an old friend interested him from the very contrast of their dispositions the lank black hair and deep grey eyes the haggard expression and nervous manner the fitful yet keen interest of his visitor were a novel change from the phlegmatic deliberations of the ordinary scientific worker with whom the bacteriologist chiefly associated it was perhaps natural with a hearer evidently so impressionable to the lethal nature of his topic to take the most effective aspect of the matter he held the tube in his hand thoughtfully yes here is the pestilence imprisoned only break such a little tube as this into a supply of drinking water say to these minute particles of life that one must needs stain and examine with the highest powers of the microscope even to see and that one can neither smell nor taste say to them go forth increase and multiply and replenish the cisterns and death mysterious untraceable death death swift and terrible death full of pain and indignity would be released upon this city and go hither and thither seeking his victims here he would take the husband from the wife here the child from its mother here the statesman from his duty and here the toiler from his trouble he would follow the water mains creeping along streets picking out and punishing a house here and a house there where they did not boil their drinking water creeping into the wells of the mineral water makers getting washed into salad and lying dormant in ices he would wait ready to be drunk in the horse troughs and by unwary children in the public fountains he would soak into the soil to reappear in springs and wells at a thousand unexpected places once start him at the water supply and before we could ring him in and catch him again he would have decimated the metropolis he stopped abruptly he had been told rhetoric was his weakness but he is quite safe here you know quite safe the pale-faced man nodded his eyes shone he cleared his throat these anarchists 
rascals said he are fools blind fools to use bombs when this kind of thing is attainable i think a gentle rap a mere light touch of the fingernails was heard at the door the bacteriologist opened it just a minute dear whispered his wife when he re-entered the laboratory his visitor was looking at his watch i had no idea i had wasted an hour of your time he said twelve minutes to four i ought to have left here by half-past three but your things were really too interesting no positively i cannot stop a moment longer i have an engagement at four he passed out of the room reiterating his thanks and the bacteriologist accompanied him to the door and then returned thoughtfully along the passage to his laboratory he was musing on the ethnology of his visitor certainly the man was not a teutonic type nor a common latin one a morbid product anyhow i am afraid said the bacteriologist to himself how he gloated over those cultivations of disease germs a disturbing thought struck him he turned to the bench by the vapour bath and then very quickly to his writing table then he felt hastily in his pockets and then rushed to the door i may have put it down on the hall table he said minnie he shouted hoarsely in the hall yes dear came a remote voice had i anything in my hand when i spoke to you dear just now pause nothing dear because i remember blue ruin cried the bacteriologist and incontinently ran to the front door and down the steps of his house to the street minnie hearing the door slam violently ran in alarm to the window down the street a slender man was getting into a cab the bacteriologist hatless and in his carpet slippers was running and gesticulating wildly towards this group one slipper came off but he did not wait for it he has gone mad said minnie it's that horrible science of his and opening the window would have called after him the slender man suddenly glancing round seemed struck with the same idea of mental disorder he pointed hastily to the bacteriologist said something to the cabman the apron of the cab slammed the whip swished the horse's feet clattered and in a moment cab and bacteriologist hotly in pursuit had receded up the vista of the roadway and disappeared round the corner minnie remained straining out of the window for a minute then she drew her head back into the room again she was dumbfounded of course he is eccentric she meditated but running about london in the height of the season too in his socks a happy thought struck her she hastily put her bonnet on seized his shoes went into the hall took down his hat and light overcoat from the pegs emerged upon the doorstep and hailed a cab that opportunely crawled by drive me up the road and round havelock crescent and see if we can find a gentleman running about in a velveteen coat and no hat velveteen coat ma'am and no hat very good ma'am and the cabman whipped up at once in the most matter-of-fact way as if he drove to this address every day in his life some few minutes later the little group of cabmen and loafers that collects round the cabman's shelter at haverstock hill were startled by the passing of a cab with a ginger-coloured screw of a horse driven furiously they were silent as it went by 
and then as it receded that's harry hicks what's he got said the stout gentleman known as old tootles he's a using his whip he is two rights said the ostler boy hello said poor old tommy biles here's another bloomin' lunatic blowed if there ain't it's old george said old tootles and he's driving a lunatic as you say ain't he a clawin out of the cab wonder if he's after harry hicks the group round the cabman's shelter became animated chorus go george it's a race you'll catch em whip up she's a goer she is said the ostler boy strike me giddy cried old tootles here i'm a-going to begin in a minute here's another coming if all the cabs in Hampstead ain't gone mad this morning it's a feed mail this time said the ostler boy she's a-following him said old tootles usually the other way about what's she got in her hand looks like a hat what a bloomin lark it is three to one on old george said the ostler boy next minnie went by in a perfect roar of applause she did not like it but she felt that she was doing her duty and whirled on down haverstock hill and camden town high street with her eyes ever intent on the animated back view of old george who was driving her vagrant husband so incomprehensibly away from her the man in the foremost cab sat crouched in the corner his arms tightly folded and the little tube that contained such vast possibilities of destruction gripped in his hand his mood was a singular mixture of fear and exultation chiefly he was afraid of being caught before he could accomplish his purpose but behind this was a vaguer but larger fear of the awfulness of his crime but his exultation far exceeded his fear no anarchist before him had ever approached this conception of his ravachol valent all those distinguished persons whose fame he had envied dwindled into insignificance beside him he had only to make sure of the water supply and break the little tube into a reservoir how brilliantly he had planned it forged the letter of introduction and got into the laboratory and how brilliantly he had seized his opportunity the world should hear of him at last all those people who had sneered at him neglected him preferred other people to him found his company undesirable should consider him at last death 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 they had always treated him as a man of no importance all the world had been in a conspiracy to keep him under he would teach them yet what it is to isolate a man what was this familiar street great st andrew's street of course how fared the chase he craned out of the cab the bacteriologist was scarcely fifty yards behind that was bad he would be caught and stopped yet he felt in his pocket for money and found half a sovereign this he thrust up through the trap in the top of the cab into the man's face more he shouted if only we get away the money was snatched out of his hand right you are said the cabman and the trap slammed and the lash lay along the glistening side of the horse the cab swayed and the anarchist half standing under the trap put the hand containing the little glass tube upon the apron to preserve his balance he felt the brittle thing crack and the broken half of it rang upon the floor of the cab he fell back into the seat with a curse 
and stared dismally at the two or three drops of moisture on the apron he shuddered well i suppose i shall be the first Phew. anyhow i shall be a martyr that's something but it is a filthy death nevertheless i wonder if it hurts as much as they say presently a thought occurred to him he groped between his feet a little drop was still in the broken end of the tube and he drank that to make sure it was better to make sure at any rate he would not fail then it dawned upon him that there was no further need to escape the bacteriologist in wellington street he told the cabman to stop and got out he slipped on the step and his head felt queer it was rapid stuff this cholera poison he waved his cabman out of existence so to speak and stood on the pavement with his arms folded upon his breast awaiting the arrival of the bacteriologist there was something tragic in his pose the sense of imminent death gave him a certain dignity he greeted his pursuer with a defiant laugh vive l'anarchie you are too late my friend i have drunk it the cholera is abroad the bacteriologist from his cab beamed curiously at him through his spectacles you have drunk it an anarchist i see now he was about to say something more and then checked himself a smile hung in the corner of his mouth he opened the apron of his cab as if to descend at which the anarchist waved him a dramatic farewell and strode off towards waterloo bridge carefully jostling his infected body against as many people as possible the bacteriologist was so preoccupied with the vision of him that he scarcely manifested the slightest surprise at the appearance of minnie upon the pavement with his hat and shoes and overcoat very good of you to bring my things he said and remained lost in contemplation of the receding figure of the anarchist you had better get in he said still staring minnie felt absolutely convinced now that he was mad and directed the cabman home on her own responsibility put on my shoes certainly dear said he as the cab began to turn and hid the strutting black figure now small in the distance from his eyes then suddenly something grotesque struck him and he laughed then he remarked it is really very serious though you see that man came to my house to see me and he is an anarchist no don't faint or i cannot possibly tell you the rest and i wanted to astonish him not knowing he was an anarchist and took up a cultivation of that new species of bacterium i was telling you of that infest and i think cause the blue patches upon various monkeys and like a fool i said it was asiatic cholera and he ran away with it to poison the water of london and he certainly might have made things look blue for this civilized city and now he has swallowed it of course i cannot say what will happen but you know it turned that kitten blue and the three puppies in patches and the sparrow bright blue but the bother is i shall have all the trouble and expense of preparing some more put on my coat on this hot day why because we might meet mrs jabber my dear mrs jabber is not a draught 
but why should i wear a coat on a hot day because of mrs oh very well end of section three Section 4 of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Flowering of the Strange Orchid. The buying of orchids always has in it a certain speculative flavour. You have before you the brown, shrivelled lump of tissue, and for the rest you must trust your judgment, or the auctioneer, or your good luck as your taste may incline the plant may be moribund or dead or it may be just a respectable purchase fair value for your money or perhaps for the thing has happened again and again there slowly unfolds before the delighted eyes of the happy purchaser day after day some new variety some novel richness a strange twist of the labellum or some subtler coloration or unexpected mimicry pride beauty and profit blossom together on one delicate green spike and it may be even immortality for the new miracle of nature may stand in need of a new specific name and what so convenient as that of its discoverer john smithier there have been worse names it was perhaps the hope of some such happy discovery that made winter wedderburn such a frequent attendant at these sales that hope and also maybe the fact that he had nothing else of the slightest interest to do in the world he was a shy lonely rather ineffectual man provided with just enough income to keep off the spur of necessity and not enough nervous energy to make him seek any exacting employments he might have collected stamps or coins or translated horace or bound books or invented new species of diatoms but as it happened he grew orchids and had one ambitious little hothouse i have a fancy he said over his coffee that something is going to happen to me to-day he spoke as he moved and thought slowly oh don't say that said his housekeeper who was also his remote cousin for something happening was a euphemism that meant only one thing to her you misunderstand me i mean nothing unpleasant though what i do mean i scarcely know to-day he continued after a pause peters are going to sell a batch of plants from the andamans and the indies i shall go up and see what they have it may be i shall buy something good unawares that may be it he passed his cup for his second cupful of coffee are these the things collected by that poor young fellow you told me of the other day asked his cousin as she filled his cup yes he said and became meditative over a piece of toast nothing ever does happen to me he remarked presently beginning to think aloud i wonder why things enough happen to other people there is harvey only the other week on monday he picked up sixpence on wednesday his chicks all had the staggers on friday his cousin came home from australia and on saturday he broke his ankle what a whirl of excitement compared to me i think i would rather be without so much excitement said his housekeeper it can't be good for you 
i suppose it's troublesome still you see nothing ever happens to me when i was a little boy i never had accidents i never fell in love as i grew up never married i wonder how it feels to have something happen to you something really remarkable that orchid collector was only thirty-six twenty years younger than myself when he died and he had been married twice and divorced once he had had malarial fever four times and once he broke his thigh he killed a melee once and once he was wounded by a poisoned dart and in the end he was killed by jungle leeches it must have all been very troublesome but then it must have been very interesting you know except perhaps the leeches i am sure it was not good for him said the lady with conviction perhaps not and then wedderburn looked at his watch twenty-three minutes past eight i am going up by the quarter to twelve train so that there is plenty of time i think i shall wear my alpaca jacket it is quite warm enough and my grey felt hat and brown shoes i suppose he glanced out of the window at the serene sky and sunlit garden and then nervously at his cousin's face i think you had better take an umbrella if you're going to london she said in a voice that admitted of no denial there's all between here and the station coming back when he returned he was in a state of mild excitement he had made a purchase it was rare that he could make up his mind quickly enough to buy but this time he had done so there are vanders he said and a dendrobe and some paleonophis he surveyed his purchases lovingly as he consumed his soup they were laid out on the spotless tablecloth before him and he was telling his cousin all about them as he slowly meandered through his dinner it was his custom to live all his visits to london over again in the evening for her and his own entertainment i knew something would happen to-day and i've brought all these some of them some of them i feel sure do you know that some of them will be remarkable i don't know how it is but i feel just as sure as if someone had told me that some of these will turn out remarkable that one he pointed to a shrivelled rhizome was not identified it may be a paleonophis or it may not it may be a new species or even a new genus and it was the last that poor batten ever collected i don't like the look of it said his housekeeper it's such an ugly shape to me it scarcely seems to have a shape i don't like those things that stick out said his housekeeper it shall be put away in a pot to-morrow it looks said the housekeeper like a spider shamming dead wedderburn smiled and surveyed the root with his head on one side it is certainly not a pretty lump of stuff but you can never judge of these things from their dry appearance it may turn out to be a very beautiful orchid indeed how busy i shall be to-morrow i must see to-night just exactly what to do with these things and to-morrow i shall set to work they found poor batten lying dead or dying in a mangrove swamp i forget which he began again presently with one of these very orchids crushed up under his body he had been unwell for some days with some kind of native fever and i suppose he fainted these mangrove swamps are very unwholesome 
every drop of blood they say was taken out of him by the jungle leeches it may be that very plant that cost him his life to obtain i think none the better of it for that men must work though women may weep said wedderburn with profound gravity fancy dying away from every comfort in a nasty swamp fancy being ill of fever with nothing to take but chlorodyne and quinine if men were left to themselves they would live on chlorodyne and quinine and no one round you but horrible natives they say the andaman islanders are most disgusting wretches and anyhow they can scarcely make good nurses not having the necessary training and just for people in england to have orchids i don't suppose it was comfortable but some men seem to enjoy that kind of thing said wedderburn anyhow the natives of his party were sufficiently civilized to take care of all his collection until his colleague who was an ornithologist came back again from the interior though they could not tell the species of the orchid and had let it wither and it makes these things more interesting it makes them disgusting i should be afraid of some of the malaria clinging to them and just think there has been a dead body lying across that ugly thing i never thought of that before there i declare i cannot eat another mouthful of dinner i will take them off the table if you like and put them in the window seat i can see them just as well there the next few days he was indeed singularly busy in his steamy little hothouse fussing about with charcoal lumps of teak moss and all the other mysteries of the orchid cultivator he considered he was having a wonderfully eventful time in the evening he would talk about these new orchids to his friends and over and over again he reverted to his expectation of something strange several of the vanders and the dendrobium died under his care but presently the strange orchid began to show signs of life he was delighted and took his housekeeper right away from jam making to see it at once directly he made the discovery that is a bud he said and presently there will be a lot of leaves there and those little things coming out here are aerial rootlets they look to me like little white fingers poking out of the brown said his housekeeper i don't like them why not i don't know they look like fingers trying to get at you i can't help my likes and dislikes i don't know for certain but i don't think there are any orchids i know that have aerial rootlets quite like that it may be my fancy of course you see they are a little flattened at the ends i don't like em said his housekeeper suddenly shivering and turning away i know it's very silly of me and i'm very sorry particularly as you like the thing so much but i can't help thinking of that corpse but it may not be that particular plant that was merely a guess of mine his housekeeper shrugged her shoulders anyhow i don't like it she said wedderburn felt a little hurt at her dislike to the plant but that did not prevent his talking to her about orchids generally and this orchid in particular whenever he felt inclined there are such queer things about orchids he said one day 
such possibilities of surprises you know darwin studied their fertilization and showed that the whole structure of an ordinary orchid flower was contrived in order that moths might carry the pollen from plant to plant well it seems that there are lots of orchids known the flower of which cannot possibly be used for fertilization in that way some of the cypripediums for instance there are no insects known that can possibly fertilize them and some of them have never been found with seed but how do they form new plants by runners and tubers and that kind of outgrowth that is easily explained the puzzle is what are the flowers for very likely he added my orchid may be something extraordinary in that way if so i shall study it i have often thought of making researches as darwin did but hitherto i have not found the time or something else has happened to prevent it the leaves are beginning to unfold now i do wish you would come and see them but she said that the orchid house was so hot it gave her the headache she had seen the plant once again and the aerial rootlets which were now some of them more than a foot long had unfortunately reminded her of tentacles reaching out after something and they got into her dreams growing after her with incredible rapidity so that she had settled to her entire satisfaction that she would not see that plant again and wedderburn had to admire its leaves alone they were of the ordinary broad form and a deep glossy green with splashes and dots of deep red towards the base he knew of no other leaves quite like them the plant was placed on a low bench near the thermometer and close by was a simple arrangement by which a tap dripped on the hot water pipes and kept the air steamy and he spent his afternoons now with some regularity meditating on the approaching flowering of this strange plant and at last the great thing happened directly he entered the little glass-house he knew that the spike had burst out although his great paleonophis loei hid the corner where his new darling stood there was a new odour in the air a rich intensely sweet scent that overpowered every other in that crowded steaming little greenhouse directly he noticed this he hurried down to the strange orchid and behold the trailing green spikes bore now three great splashes of blossom from which this overpowering sweetness proceeded he stopped before them in an ecstasy of admiration the flowers were white with streaks of golden orange upon the petals the heavy labellum was coiled into an intricate projection and a wonderful bluish purple mingled there with the gold he could see at once that the genus was altogether a new one and the insufferable scent how hot the place was the blossoms swam before his eyes he would see if the temperature was right he made a step towards the thermometer suddenly everything appeared unsteady the bricks on the floor were dancing up and down then the white blossoms the green leaves behind them the whole greenhouse seemed to sweep sideways and then in a curve upward at half-past four his cousin made the tea according to their invariable custom but wedderburn did not come in for his tea he is worshipping that horrid orchid she told herself and waited ten minutes his watch must have stopped i will go and call him 
she went straight to the hothouse and opening the door called his name there was no reply she noticed that the air was very close and loaded with an intense perfume then she saw something lying on the bricks between the hot water pipes for a minute perhaps she stood motionless he was lying face upward at the foot of the strange orchid the tentacle-like aerial rootlets no longer swayed freely in the air but were crowded together a tangle of grey ropes and stretched tight with their ends closely applied to his chin and neck and hands she did not understand then she saw from under one of the exultant tentacles upon his cheek there trickled a little thread of blood with an inarticulate cry she ran towards him and tried to pull him away from the leech-like suckers she snapped two of these tentacles and their sap dripped red then the overpowering scent of the blossom began to make her head reel how they clung to him she tore at the tough ropes and he and the white inflorescence swam about her she felt she was fainting knew she must not she left him and hastily opened the nearest door and after she had panted for a moment in the fresh air she had a brilliant inspiration she caught up a flower-pot and smashed in the windows at the end of the greenhouse then she re-entered she tugged now with renewed strength at wedderburn's motionless body and brought the strange orchid crashing to the floor it still clung with the grimmest tenacity to its victim in a frenzy she lugged it and him into the open air then she thought of tearing through the sucker rootlets one by one and in another minute she had released him and was dragging him away from the horror he was white and bleeding from a dozen circular patches the odd job man was coming up the garden amazed at the smashing of glass and saw her emerge hauling the inanimate body with red-stained hands for a moment he thought impossible things bring some water she cried and her voice dispelled his fancies when with unnatural alacrity he returned with the water he found her weeping with excitement and with wedderburn's head upon her knee wiping the blood from his face and the orchid said wedderburn opening his eyes feebly and closing them again at once go and tell annie to come out here to me and then go for dr haddon at once she said to the odd job man so soon as he brought the water and added seeing he hesitated i will tell you all about it when you come back presently wedderburn opened his eyes again and seeing that he was troubled by the puzzle of his position she explained to him you fainted in the hothouse and the orchid i will see to that she said wedderburn had lost a good deal of blood but beyond that he had suffered no very great injury they gave him brandy mixed with some pink extract of meat and carried him upstairs to bed his housekeeper told her incredible story in fragments to dr haddon come to the orchid house and see she said the cold outer air was blowing in through the open door and the sickly perfume was almost dispelled most of the torn aerial rootlets lay already withered amidst a number of dark stains upon the bricks the stem of the inflorescence was broken by the fall of the plant and the flowers were growing limp and brown at the edges of the petals the doctor stooped towards it then saw that one of the aerial rootlets still stirred feebly and hesitated 
the next morning the strange orchid still lay there black now and putrescent the door banged intermittently in the morning breeze and all the array of wedderburn's orchids was shrivelled and prostrate but wedderburn himself was bright and garrulous upstairs in the glory of his strange adventure End of section four. Section five of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. In the Avu Observatory. The observatory at Avu in Borneo stands on the spur of the mountain. To the north rises the old crater, black at night against the unfathomable blue of the sky. From the little circular building with its mushroom dome, the slopes plunge steeply downward into the black mysteries of the tropical forest beneath. The little house in which the observer and his assistant live is about fifty yards from the observatory, and beyond this are the huts of their native attendants. Thaddy, the chief observer, was down with a slight fever. His assistant, Woodhouse, paused for a moment in silent contemplation of the tropical night, before commencing his solitary vigil. The night was very still. Now and then voices and laughter came from the native huts, or the cry of some strange animal was heard from the midst of the mystery of the forest. Nocturnal insects appeared in ghostly fashion out of the darkness, and fluttered round his light. He thought, perhaps, of all the possibilities of discovery that still lay in the black tangle beneath him, for to the naturalist the virgin forests of Borneo are still a wonderland, full of strange questions and half-suspected discoveries. Woodhouse carried a small lantern in his hand, and its yellow glow contrasted vividly with the infinite series of tints between lavender blue and black in which the landscape was painted. His hands and face were smeared with ointment against the attacks of the mosquitoes. Even in these days of celestial photography, work done in a purely temporary erection and with only the most primitive appliances, in addition to the telescope, still involves a very large amount of cramped and motionless watching. He sighed as he thought of the physical fatigues before him, stretched himself, and entered the observatory. The reader is probably familiar with the structure of an ordinary astronomical observatory. The building is usually cylindrical in shape, with a very light hemispherical roof capable of being turned round from the interior. The telescope is supported upon a stone pillar in the centre, and a clockwork arrangement compensates for the Earth's rotation, and allows a star, once found, to be continuously observed. Besides this, there is a compact tracery of wheels and screws about its point of support, by which the astronomer adjusts it. There is, of course, a slit in the movable roof, which follows the eye of the telescope in its survey of the heavens. The observer sits or lies on a sloping wooden arrangement, which he can wheel to any part of the observatory, as the position of the telescope may require. Within, it is advisable to have things as dark as possible, in order to enhance the brilliance of the stars observed. The lantern flared as Woodhouse entered his circular den, and the general darkness fled into black shadows behind the big machine, 
from which it presently seemed to creep back over the whole place again as the light waned the slit was a profound transparent blue in which six stars shone with tropical brilliance and the light lay a pallid gleam along the black tube of the instrument woodhouse shifted the roof and then proceeding to the telescope turned first one wheel and then another the great cylinder slowly swinging into a new position then he glanced through the finder the little companion telescope moved the roof a little more made some further adjustments and set the clockwork in motion he took off his jacket for the night was very hot and pushed into position the uncomfortable seat to which he was condemned for the next four hours then with a sigh he resigned himself to his watch upon the mysteries of space there was no sound now in the observatory and the lantern waned steadily outside there was the occasional cry of some animal in alarm or pain or calling to its mate and the intermittent sounds of the melee and dyak servants presently one of the men began a queer chanting song in which the others joined at intervals after this it would seem that they turned in for the night for no further sound came from their direction and the whispering stillness became more and more profound the clockwork ticked steadily the shrill hum of a mosquito explored the place and grew shriller in indignation at woodhouse's ointment then the lantern went out and all the observatory was black woodhouse shifted his position presently when the slow movement of the telescope had carried it beyond the limits of his comfort he was watching a little group of stars in the milky way in one of which his chief had seen or fancied a remarkable colour variability it was not a part of the regular work for which the establishment existed and for that reason perhaps woodhouse was deeply interested he must have forgotten things terrestrial all his attention was concentrated upon the great blue circle of the telescope field a circle powdered so it seemed with an innumerable multitude of stars and all luminous against the blackness of its setting as he watched he seemed to himself to become incorporeal as if he too were floating in the ether of space infinitely remote was the faint red spot he was observing suddenly the stars were blotted out a flash of blackness passed and they were visible again queer said woodhouse must have been a bird the thing happened again and immediately after the great tube shivered as though it had been struck then the dome of the observatory resounded with a series of thundering blows the stars seemed to sweep aside as the telescope which had been unclamped swung round and away from the slit in the roof great scott cried woodhouse what's this some huge vague black shape with a flapping something like a wing seemed to be struggling in the aperture of the roof in another moment the slit was clear again and the luminous haze of the milky way shone warm and bright the interior of the roof was perfectly black and only a scraping sound marked the whereabouts of the unknown creature woodhouse had scrambled from the seat to his feet he was trembling violently and in a perspiration with the suddenness of the occurrence was the thing whatever it was inside or out it was big 
whatever else it might be. Something shot across the skylight, and the telescope swayed. He started violently, and put his arm up. It was in the observatory, then, with him. It was clinging to the roof, apparently. What the devil was it? Could it see him? He stood for perhaps a minute in a state of stupefaction. The beast, whatever it was, clawed at the interior of the dome, and then something flapped almost into his face, and he saw the momentary gleam of starlight on a skin like oiled leather. His water-bottle was knocked off his little table with a smash. The sense of some strange bird-creature hovering a few yards from his face in the darkness was indescribably unpleasant to Woodhouse. As his thought returned, he concluded that it must be some night-bird or large bat. At any risk he would see what it was, and pulling a match from his pocket, he tried to strike it on the telescope-seat. There was a smoking streak of phosphorescent light. The match flared for a moment, and he saw a vast wing sweeping towards him, a gleam of grey-brown fur, and then he was struck in the face, and the match knocked out of his hand. The blow was aimed at his temple, and a claw tore sideways down to his cheek. He reeled and fell, and he heard the extinguished lantern smash. Another blow followed as he fell. He was partly stunned. He felt his own warm blood stream out upon his face. Instinctively he felt his eyes had been struck at, and, turning over on his face to save them, tried to crawl under the protection of the telescope. He was struck again upon the back, and he heard his jacket rip, and then the thing hit the roof of the observatory. He edged as far as he could between the wooden seat and the eyepiece of the instrument, and turned his body round so that it was chiefly his feet that were exposed. With these he could at least kick. He was still in a mystified state. The strange beast banged about in the darkness, and presently clung to the telescope, making it sway and the gear rattle. Once it flapped near him, and he kicked out madly and felt a soft body with his feet. He was horribly scared now. It must be a big thing to swing the telescope like that. He saw for a moment the outline of a head, black against the starlight, with sharply pointed upstanding ears, and a crest between them. It seemed to him to be as big as a mastiff's. Then he began to bawl out as loudly as he could for help. At that the thing came down upon him again. As it did so, his hand touched something beside him on the floor. He kicked out and the next moment his ankle was gripped and held by a row of keen teeth. He yelled again, and tried to free his leg by kicking with the other. Then he realized he had the broken water-bottle at his hand, and, snatching it, he struggled into a sitting posture, and, feeling in the darkness towards his foot, gripped a velvety ear like the ear of a big cat. He had seized the water-bottle by its neck, and brought it down with a shivering crash upon the head of the strange beast. He repeated the blow, and then stabbed and jabbed with the jagged end of it, in the darkness where he judged the face might be. The small teeth relaxed their hold, and at once Woodhouse pulled his leg free and kicked hard. He felt the sickening feel of fur and bone giving under his boot. There was a tearing bite at his arm, and he struck over it at the face, as he judged, and hit damp fur. There was a pause, and then he heard the sound of claws, and the dragging of a heavy body away from him over the observatory floor. Then there was silence, broken only by his own sobbing breathing, and a sound like licking. 
everything was black except the parallelogram of the blue skylight with the luminous dust of stars against which the end of the telescope now appeared in silhouette he waited as it seemed an interminable time was the thing coming on again he felt in his trouser pocket for some matches and found one remaining he tried to strike this but the floor was wet and it spat and went out he cursed he could not see where the door was situated in his struggle he had quite lost his bearings the strange beast disturbed by the splutter of the match began to move again time called woodhouse with a sudden gleam of mirth but the thing was not coming at him again he must have hurt it he thought with the broken bottle he felt a dull pain in his ankle probably he was bleeding there he wondered if it would support him if he tried to stand up the night outside was very still there was no sound of anyone moving the sleepy fools had not heard those wings battering upon the dome nor his shouts it was no good wasting strength in shouting the monster flapped its wings and startled him into a defensive attitude he hit his elbow against the seat and it fell over with a crash he cursed this and then he cursed the darkness suddenly the oblong patch of starlight seemed to sway to and fro was he going to faint it would never do to faint he clenched his fists and set his teeth to hold himself together where had the door got to it occurred to him he could get his bearings by the stars visible through the skylight the patch of stars he saw was in sagittarius and southeastward the door was north or was it north by west he tried to think if he could get the door open he might retreat it might be the thing was wounded the suspense was beastly look here he said if you don't come on i shall come at you then the thing began clambering up the side of the observatory and he saw its black outline gradually block out the skylight was it in retreat he forgot about the door and watched as the dome shifted and creaked somehow he did not feel very frightened or excited now he felt a curious sinking sensation inside him the sharply defined patch of light with the black form moving across it seemed to be growing smaller and smaller that was curious he began to feel very thirsty and yet he did not feel inclined to get anything to drink he seemed to be sliding down a long funnel he felt a burning sensation in his throat and then he perceived it was broad daylight and that one of the dyak servants was looking at him with a curious expression then there was the top of thaddy's face upside down funny fellow thaddy to go about like that then he grasped the situation better and perceived that his head was on thaddy's knee and thaddy was giving him brandy and then he saw the eyepiece of the telescope with a lot of red smears on it he began to remember you've made this observatory in a pretty mess said thaddy the dyak boy was beating up an egg in brandy woodhouse took this and sat up he felt a sharp twinge of pain his ankle was tied up so were his arm and the side of his face the smashed glass red stained lay about the floor the telescope seat was overturned and by the opposite wall was a dark pool the door was open and he saw the grey summit of the mountain against a brilliant background of blue sky Pah! said woodhouse who's been killing calves here 
take me out of it then he remembered the thing and the fight he had had with it what was it he said to thaddy the thing i fought with you know that best said thaddy but anyhow don't worry yourself now about it have some more to drink thaddy however was curious enough and it was a hard struggle between duty and inclination to keep woodhouse quiet until he was decently put away in bed and had slept upon the copious dose of meat extract thaddy considered advisable they then talked it over together it was said woodhouse more like a big bat than anything else in the world it had short sharp ears and soft fur and its wings were leathery its teeth were little but devilish sharp and its jaw could not have been very strong or else it would have bitten through my ankle it has pretty nearly said thaddy it seemed to me to hit out with its claws pretty freely that is about as much as i know about the beast our conversation was intimate so to speak and yet not confidential the dyak chaps talk about a big kalugo a clang yutang whatever that may be it does not often attack man but i suppose you made it nervous they say there is a big kalugo and a little kalugo and uh, something else that sounds like gobble they all fly about at night for my part i know there are flying foxes and flying lemurs about here but they are none of them very big beasts there are more things in heaven and earth said woodhouse and thaddy groaned at the quotation and more particularly in the forests of borneo than are dreamt of in our philosophies on the whole if the borneo fauna is going to disgorge any more of its novelties upon me i should prefer that it did so when i was not occupied in the observatory at night and alone End of section 5section six of the country of the blind and other stories by h g wells this librivox recording is in the public domain read by peter yearsley epiornis island the man with the scarred face leant over the table and looked at my bundle orchids he asked a few i said cypripediums he said chiefly said i anything new i thought not i did these islands twenty-five twenty-seven years ago if you find anything new here well it's brand new i didn't leave much i'm not a collector said i i was young then he went on lord how i used to fly round he seemed to take my measure i was in the east indies two years and in brazil seven then i went to madagascar i know a few explorers by name i said anticipating a yarn whom did you collect for dawson's i wonder if you heard the name of butcher ever butcher butcher the name seemed vaguely present in my memory then i recalled butcher versus dawson why said i you're the man who sued them for four years salary got cast away on a desert island your servant said the man with the scar bowing funny case wasn't it here was me making a little fortune on that island doing nothing for it either and them quite unable to give me notice it often used to amuse me thinking over it while i was there i did calculations of it big 
all over the blessed atoll in ornamental figuring how did it happen said i i don't rightly remember the case well you've heard of the epiornis rather andrews was telling me of a new species he was working on only a month or so ago they've got a thigh bone it seems nearly a yard long monster the thing must have been i believe you said the man with the scar it was a monster sinbad's rock was just a legend of them but when did they find these bones three or four years ago ninety-one i fancy why why because i found them lord it's nearly twenty years ago if dawson's hadn't been silly about that salary they might have made a perfect ring in em i couldn't help the infernal boat going adrift he paused i suppose it's the same place a kind of swamp about ninety miles north of antananarivo do you happen to know you have to go to it along the coast by boats you don't happen to remember perhaps i don't i fancy andrews said something about a swamp it must be the same it's on the east coast and somehow there's something in the water that keeps things from decaying like creosote it smells it reminded me of trinidad did they get any more eggs some of the eggs i found were a foot and a half long the swamp goes circling round you know and cuts off this bit it's mostly salt too well what a time i had of it i found the things quite by accident we went for eggs me and two native chaps in one of those rum canoes all tied together and found the bones at the same time we had a tent and provisions for four days and we pitched on one of the firmer places to think of it brings that odd tarry smell back even now it's funny work you go probing into the mud with iron rods you know usually the egg gets smashed i wonder how long it is since these epionises really lived the missionaries say the natives have legends about when they were alive but i never heard any such stories myself footnote no european is known to have seen a live epionis with the doubtful exception of macandrew who visited madagascar in seventeen forty five h g w End footnote. but certainly those eggs we got were as fresh as if they had been new laid fresh carrying them down to the boat one of my nigger chaps dropped one on a rock and it smashed how i lammed into the beggar but sweet it was as if it was new laid not even smelly and its mother dead these four hundred years perhaps said a centipede had bit him however i'm getting off the straight with the story it had taken us all day to dig into the slush and get these eggs out unbroken and we were all covered with beastly black mud and naturally i was cross so far as i knew they were the only eggs that have ever been got out not even cracked i went afterwards to see the ones they have at the natural history museum in london all of them were cracked and just stuck together like a mosaic and bits missing mine were perfect and i meant to blow them when i got back naturally i was annoyed at the silly duffer dropping three hours work just on account of a centipede i hit him about rather the man with the scar took out a clay pipe i placed my pouch before him he filled up absent-mindedly how about the others did you get those home i don't remember that's the queer part of the story i had three others perfectly fresh eggs well we put them in the boat 
and then I went up to the tent to make some coffee, leaving my two heathens down by the beach, the one falling about with his sting, and the other helping him. It never occurred to me that the beggars would take advantage of the peculiar position I was in to pick a quarrel, but I suppose the centipede poison and the kicking I had given him had upset the one, and he was always a cantankerous sort, and he persuaded the other. I remember I was sitting and smoking and boiling up the water over a spirit-lamp business I used to take on these expeditions. Incidentally, I was admiring the swamp under the sunset, all black and blood-red it was, in streaks, a beautiful sight, and up beyond the land rose grey and hazy to the hills, and the sky behind them red like a furnace-mouth. And fifty yards behind the back of me was these blessed heathen, quite regardless of the tranquil air of things, plotting to cut off with the boat and leave me all alone, with three days' provisions and a canvas tent, and nothing to drink whatsoever beyond a little keg of water. I heard a kind of yelp behind me, and there they were in this canoe affair. It wasn't properly a boat, and perhaps twenty yards from land. I realised what was up in a moment. My gun was in the tent, and besides I had no bullets, only duck-shot. They knew that but I had a little revolver in my pocket, and I pulled that out as I ran down to the beach. "'Come back,' says I, flourishing it. They jabbered something at me, and the man that broke the egg jeered. I aimed at the other because he was unwounded and had the paddle, and I missed. They laughed. However, I wasn't beat. I knew I had to keep cool, and I tried him again, and made him jump with the wang of it. He didn't laugh that time. The third time I got his head and over he went, and the paddle with him. It was a precious lucky shot for a revolver. I reckon it was fifty yards. He went right under. I don't know if he was shot, or simply stunned and drowned. Then I began to shout to the other chap to come back, but he huddled up in the canoe and refused to answer, so I fired out my revolver at him, and never got near him. I felt a precious fool, I can tell you. There I was on this rotten black beach, flat swamp all behind me, and the flat sea, cold after the sunset, and just this black canoe, drifting steadily out to sea. I tell you I damned Dawson's and Jamrach's and museums and all the rest of it, just to rights. I bawled to this nigger to come back, until my voice went up into a scream. There was nothing for it but to swim after him, and take my luck with the sharks. So I opened my clasp-knife, and put it in my mouth, and took off my clothes and waded in. As soon as I was in the water, I lost sight of the canoe, but I aimed, as I judged, to head it off. I hoped the man in it was too bad to navigate it, and that it would keep on drifting in the same direction. Presently it came up over the horizon again, to the southwestward about. The afterglow of sunset was well over now, and the dim of night creeping up. The stars were coming through the blue. I swum like a champion, though my legs and arms were soon aching. However, I came up to him by the time the stars were fairly out. As it got darker, I began to see all manner of glowing things in the water. Phosphorescence, you know. At times it made me giddy. I hardly knew which was stars and which was phosphorescence, and whether I was swimming on my head or my heels. The canoe was as black as sin, and the ripple under the bows like liquid fire. I was naturally chary of clambering up into it. I was anxious to see what he was up to first, 
he seemed to be lying cuddled up in a lump in the bows and the stern was all out of water the thing kept turning round slowly as it drifted kind of waltzing don't you know i went to the stern and pulled it down expecting him to wake up then i began to clamber in with my knife in my hand and ready for a rush but he never stirred so there i sat in the stern of the little canoe drifting away over the calm phosphorescent sea and with all the host of the stars above me waiting for something to happen after a long time i called him by name but he never answered i was too tired to take any risks by going along to him so we sat there i fancy i dozed once or twice when the dawn came i saw he was as dead as a doornail and all puffed up and purple my three eggs and the bones were lying in the middle of the canoe and the keg of water and some coffee and biscuits wrapped in a cape argus by his feet and a tin of methylated spirit underneath him there was no paddle nor in fact anything except the spirit tin that i could use as one so i settled to drift until i was picked up i held an inquest on him brought in a verdict against some snake scorpion or centipede unknown and sent him overboard after that i had a drink of water and a few biscuits and took a look round i suppose a man low down as i was don't see very far leastways madagascar was clean out of sight and any trace of land at all i saw a sail going southwestward looked like a schooner but her hull never came up presently the sun got high in the sky and began to beat down upon me lord it pretty near made my brains boil I tried dipping my head in the sea, but after a while my eye fell on the Cape Argus, and I lay down flat in the canoe and spread this over me. Wonderful things, these newspapers. I never read one through thoroughly before, but it's odd what you get up to when you're alone, as I was. I suppose I read that blessed old Cape Argus twenty times. The pitch in the canoe simply reeked with the heat and rose up into big blisters i drifted ten days said the man with the scar it's a little thing in the telling isn't it every day was like the last except in the morning and the evening i never kept a lookout even the blaze was so infernal i didn't see a sail after the first three days and those i saw took no notice of me about the sixth night a ship went by scarcely half a mile away from me with all its lights ablaze and its ports open looking like a big firefly there was music aboard i stood up and shouted and screamed at it the second day i broached one of the epionis eggs scraped the shell away at the end bit by bit and tried it and i was glad to find it was good enough to eat a bit flavoury not bad i mean but with something of the taste of a duck's egg there was a kind of circular patch about six inches across on one side of the yolk and with streaks of blood and a white mark like a ladder in it that i thought queer but i did not understand what this meant at the time and i wasn't inclined to be particular the egg lasted me three days with biscuits and a drink of water i chewed coffee berries too invigorating stuff the second egg i opened about the eighth day and it scared me the man with the scar paused yes he said developing I dare say you find it hard to believe i did with the thing before me there the egg had been sunk in that cold black mud perhaps three hundred years but there was no mistaking it there was the 
what is it embryo with its big head and curved back and its heart beating under its throat and the yolk shrivelled up and great membranes spreading inside of the shell and all over the yolk here was i hatching out the eggs of the biggest of all extinct birds in a little canoe in the midst of the indian ocean if old dawson had known that it was worth four years salary what do you think however i had to eat that precious thing up every bit of it before i sighted the reef and some of the mouthfuls were beastly unpleasant i left the third one alone i held it up to the light but the shell was too thick for me to get any notion of what might be happening inside and though i fancied i heard blood pulsing it might have been the rustle in my own ears like what you listen to in a seashell then came the atoll came out of the sunrise as it were suddenly close up to me i drifted straight towards it until i was about half a mile from shore not more and then the current took a turn and i had to paddle as hard as i could with my hands and bits of the epionis shell to make the place however i got there it was just a common atoll about four miles round with a few trees growing and a spring in one place and the lagoon full of parrot fish i took the egg ashore and put it in a good place well above the tide lines and in the sun to give it all the chance i could and pulled the canoe up safe and loafed about prospecting it's rum how dull an atoll is as soon as i had found a spring all the interest seemed to vanish when i was a kid i thought nothing could be finer or more adventurous than the robinson crusoe business but that place was as monotonous as a book of sermons i went round finding eatable things and generally thinking but i tell you i was bored to death before the first day was out it shows my luck the very day i landed the weather changed a thunderstorm went by to the north and flicked its wing over the island and in the night there came a drencher and a howling wind slap over us it wouldn't have taken much you know to upset that canoe i was sleeping under the canoe and the egg was luckily among the sand higher up the beach and the first thing i remember was a sound like a hundred pebbles hitting the boat at once and a rush of water over my body i'd been dreaming of antananarivo and i sat up and hollowed to intoshi to ask her what the devil was up and clawed out at the chair where the matches used to be then i remembered where i was there were phosphorescent waves rolling up as if they meant to eat me and all the rest of the night as black as pitch the air was simply yelling the clouds seemed down on your head almost and the rain fell as if heaven was sinking and they were bailing out the waters above the firmament one great roller came writhing at me like a fiery serpent and i bolted then i thought of the canoe and ran down to it as the water went hissing back again but the thing had gone i wondered about the egg then and felt my way to it it was all right and well out of reach of the maddest waves so i sat down beside it and cuddled it for company lord what a night that was the storm was over before the morning there wasn't a rag of cloud left in the sky when the dawn came and all along the beach there were bits of plank scattered which was the disarticulated skeleton so to speak of my canoe however that gave me something to do for taking advantage of two of the trees being together i rigged up a kind of storm shelter with these vestiges and that day the egg hatched hatched sir when my head was pillowed on it and i was asleep i heard a whack 
and felt a jar and sat up and there was the end of the egg pecked out and a rum little brown head looking out at me lord i said you're welcome and with a little difficulty he came out he was a nice friendly little chap at first about the size of a small hen very much like most other young birds only bigger his plumage was a dirty brown to begin with with a sort of grey scab that fell off it very soon and scarcely feathers a kind of downy hair i can hardly express how pleased i was to see him i tell you robinson crusoe don't make near enough of his loneliness but here was interesting company he looked at me and winked his eye from the front backwards like a hen and gave a chirp and began to peck about at once as though being hatched three hundred years too late was just nothing glad to see you man friday says i for i had naturally settled he was to be called man friday if ever he was hatched as soon as ever i found the egg in the canoe had developed i was a bit anxious about his feed so i gave him a lump of raw parrotfish at once he took it and opened his beak for more i was glad of that for under the circumstances if he'd been at all fanciful i should have had to eat him after all you'd be surprised what an interesting bird that epionis chick was he followed me about from the very beginning he used to stand by me and watch while i fished in the lagoon and go shares in anything i caught and he was sensible too there were nasty green warty things like pickled gherkins used to lie about on the beach and he tried one of these and it upset him he never even looked at any of them again and he grew you could almost see him grow and as i was never much of a society man his quiet friendly ways suited me to a t for nearly two years we were as happy as we could be on that island i had no business worries for i knew my salary was mounting up at dawson's we would see a sale now and then but nothing ever came near us i amused myself too by decorating the island with designs worked in sea urchins and fancy shells of various kinds i put epionis island all round the place very nearly in big letters like what you see done with coloured stones at railway stations in the old country and mathematical calculations and drawings of various sorts and i used to lie watching the blessed birds stalking round and growing growing and think how i could make a living out of him by showing him about if i ever got taken off after his first moult he began to get handsome with a crest and a blue wattle and a lot of green feathers at the behind of him and then i used to puzzle whether dawson's had any right to claim him or not stormy weather and in the rainy season we lay snug under the shelter i made out of the old canoe and i used to tell him lies about my friends at home and after a storm we would go round the island together to see if there was any drift it was a kind of idyll you might say if only i had had some tobacco it would have been simply just like heaven it was about the end of the second year our little paradise went wrong friday was then about fourteen feet high to the bill of him with a big broad head like the end of a pickaxe and two huge brown eyes with yellow rims set together like a man's not out of sight of each other like a hen's his plumage was fine none of the half mourning style of your ostrich more like a cassowary as far as colour and texture go and then it was he began to cock his comb at me and give himself airs and show signs of a nasty temper at last came a time when my fishing had been rather unlucky 
and he began to hang about me in a queer meditative way. I thought he might have been eating sea cucumbers or something, but it was really just discontent on his part. I was hungry too, and when at last I landed a fish, I wanted it for myself. Tempers were short that morning on both sides. He pecked at it and grabbed it, and I gave him a whack on the head to make him leave go. And at that he went for me. Lord! He gave me this in the face. The man indicated his scar. Then he kicked me. It was like a cart horse. I got up and, seeing he hadn't finished, I started off full tilt with my arms doubled up over my face. But he ran on those gawky legs of his faster than a racehorse and kept landing out at me with sledgehammer kicks and bringing his pickaxe down on the back of my head. I made for the lagoon and went in up to my neck. He stopped at the water, for he hated getting his feet wet, and began to make a shindy, something like a peacock's only hoarser. He started strutting up and down the beach. I'll admit I felt small to see this blessed fossil lording it there, and my head and face were all bleeding, and, well, my body just one jelly of bruises. I decided to swim across the lagoon and leave him alone for a bit until the affair blew over. I shinned up the tallest palm tree and sat there thinking of it all. I don't suppose I ever felt so hurt by anything before or since. It was the brutal ingratitude of the creature. I'd been more than a brother to him. I'd hatched him, educated him, a great, gawky, out-of-date bird, and me? a human being, heir of the ages and all that. I thought after a time he'd begin to see things in that light himself, and feel a little sorry for his behaviour. I thought if I was to catch some nice little bits of fish, perhaps, and go to him presently in a casual kind of way, and offer them to him, he might do the sensible thing. It took me some time to learn how unforgiving and cantankerous an extinct bird can be. Malice! I won't tell you all the little devices I tried to get that bird round again. I simply can't. It makes my cheek burn with shame, even now, to think of the snubs and buffets I had from this infernal curiosity. I tried violence. I chucked lumps of coral at him from a safe distance, but he only swallowed them. I shied my open knife at him, and almost lost it, though it was too big for him to swallow. I tried starving him out, and struck fishing but he took to picking along the beach at low water after worms, and rubbed along on that. Half my time I spent up to my neck in the lagoon, and the rest up the palm trees. One of them was scarcely high enough, and when he caught me up it, he had a regular bank holiday with the calves of my legs. It got unbearable. I don't know if you've ever tried sleeping up a palm tree. It gave me the most horrible nightmares. Think of the shame of it, too. Here was this extinct animal, mooning about my island like a sulky duke, and me not allowed to rest the sole of my foot on the place. I used to cry with weariness and vexation. I told him straight that I didn't mean to be chased about a desert island by any damned anachronisms. I told him to go and peck a navigator of his own age, but he only snapped his beak at me, great ugly bird, all legs and neck. I shouldn't like to say how long that went on altogether. I'd have killed him sooner if I'd known how. However, I hit on a way of settling him at last. It is a South American dodge. 
i joined all my fishing lines together with stems of seaweed and things and made a stoutish string perhaps twelve yards in length or more and i fastened two lumps of coral rock to the ends of this it took me some time to do because every now and then i had to go into the lagoon or up a tree as the fancy took me this i whirled rapidly round my head and then let it go at him the first time i missed but the next time the string caught his legs beautifully and wrapped round them again and again over he went i threw it standing waist-deep in the lagoon and as soon as he went down i was out of the water and sawing at his neck with my knife i don't like to think of that even now i felt like a murderer while i did it though my anger was hot against him when i stood over him and saw him bleeding on the white sand and his beautiful great legs and neck writhing in his last agony phew. with that tragedy loneliness came upon me like a curse good lord you can't imagine how i missed that bird i sat by his corpse and sorrowed over him and shivered as i looked round the desolate silent reef i thought of what a jolly little bird he had been when he was hatched and of a thousand pleasant tricks he had played before he went wrong i thought if i'd only wounded him i might have nursed him round into a better understanding if i'd had any means of digging into the coral rock i'd have buried him i felt exactly as if he was human as it was i couldn't think of eating him so i put him in the lagoon and the little fishes picked him clean i didn't even save the feathers then one day a chap cruising about in a yacht had a fancy to see if my atoll still existed he didn't come a moment too soon for i was about sick enough of the desolation of it and only hesitating whether i should walk out into the sea and finish up the business that way or fall back on the green things i sold the bones to a man named winslow a dealer near the british museum and he says he sold them to old havers it seems havers didn't understand they were extra large and it was only after his death they attracted attention they called him epionis what was it epionis vastus said i it's funny the very thing was mentioned to me by a friend of mine when they found an epionis with a thigh a yard long they thought they had reached the top of the scale and called him epionis maximus then someone turned up another thigh bone four feet six or more and that they called epionis titan then your vastus was found after old havers died in his collection and then a vastissimus turned up winslow is telling me as much said the man with the scar if they get any more epionuses he reckons some scientific swell will go and burst a blood vessel but it was a queer thing to happen to a man wasn't it altogether end of section six Section 7 of The Country of the Blind and Other Stories by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Yearsley. The Remarkable Case of Davidson's Eyes. 1. The transitory mental aberration of Sidney Davidson, remarkable enough in itself, is still more remarkable if Wade's explanation is to be credited it sets one dreaming of the oddest possibilities of intercommunication in the future of spending an intercalary five minutes on the other side of the world 
or being watched in our most secret operations by unsuspected eyes it happened that i was the immediate witness of davidson's seizure and so it falls naturally to me to put the story upon paper when i say that i was the immediate witness of his seizure i mean that i was the first on the scene the thing happened at the harlow technical college just beyond the highgate archway he was alone in the larger laboratory when the thing happened i was in a smaller room where the balances are writing up some notes the thunderstorm had completely upset my work of course it was just after one of the louder peals that i thought i heard some glass smash in the other room i stopped writing and turned round to listen for a moment i heard nothing the hail was playing the devil's tattoo on the corrugated zinc of the roof then came another sound a smash no doubt of it this time something heavy had been knocked off the bench i jumped up at once and went and opened the door leading into the big laboratory i was surprised to hear a queer sort of laugh and saw davidson standing unsteadily in the middle of the room with a dazzled look on his face my first impression was that he was drunk he did not notice me he was clawing out at something invisible a yard in front of his face he put out his hand slowly rather hesitatingly and then clutched nothing what's come to it he said he held up his hands to his face fingers spread out great scott he said the thing happened three or four years ago when everyone swore by that personage then he began raising his feet clumsily as though he had expected to find them glued to the floor davidson cried i what's the matter with you he turned round in my direction and looked about for me he looked over me and at me and on either side of me without the slightest sign of seeing me waves he said and a remarkably neat schooner i'd swear that was bellows's voice hello he shouted suddenly at the top of his voice i thought he was up to some foolery then i saw littered about his feet the shattered remains of the best of our electrometers what's up man said i you've smashed the electrometer bellows again said he friends left if my hands are gone something about electrometers which way are you bellows he suddenly came staggering towards me the damned stuff cuts like butter he said he walked straight into the bench and recoiled none so buttery that he said and stood swaying i felt scared davidson said i what on earth's come over you he looked round him in every direction i could swear that was bellows why don't you show yourself like a man bellows it occurred to me that he must be suddenly struck blind i walked round the table and laid my hand upon his arm i never saw a man more startled in my life he jumped away from me and came round into an attitude of self-defence his face fairly distorted with terror good god he cried what was that it's i bellows confound it davidson he jumped when i answered him and stared how can i express it right through me he began talking not to me but to himself here in broad daylight on a clear beach not a place to hide in he looked about him wildly here i'm off he suddenly turned and ran headlong into the big electromagnet 
so violently that, as we found afterwards, he bruised his shoulder and jawbone cruelly. At that he stepped back a pace and cried out with almost a whimper, "'What in heaven's name has come over me?' He stood, blanched with terror and trembling violently, with his right arm clutching his left, where that had collided with the magnet. By that time I was excited and fairly scared. "'Davidson,' said I, "'don't be afraid.' He was startled at my voice, but not so excessively as before. I repeated my words in as clear and as firm a tone as I could assume. "'Bellows,' he said, "'is that you? Can't you see it's me?' He laughed. "'I can't even see it's myself. Where the devil are we?' "'Here,' said I, "'in the laboratory.' the laboratory he answered in a puzzled tone and put his hand to his forehead i was in the laboratory till that flash came but i'm hanged if i'm there now what ship is that there's no ship said i do be sensible old chap no ship he repeated and seemed to forget my denial forthwith i suppose said he slowly we're both dead but the rummy part is i feel just as though i still had a body don't get used to it all at once i suppose the old shop was struck by lightning i suppose jolly quick thing bellows eh don't talk nonsense you're very much alive you are in the laboratory blundering about you've just smashed a new electrometer i don't envy you when boyce arrives he stared away from me towards the diagrams of cryohydrates i must be deaf said he they've fired a gun for there goes the puff of smoke and i never heard a sound i put my hand on his arm again and this time he was less alarmed we seem to have a sort of invisible bodies said he by jove there's a boat coming round the headland it's very much like the old life after all in a different climate davidson i cried wake up Two. It was just then that Boyce came in. So soon as he spoke, Davidson exclaimed, "'Old Boyce! Dead, too! What a lark!' I hastened to explain that Davidson was in a kind of somnambulistic trance. Boyce was interested at once. We both did all we could to rouse the fellow out of his extraordinary state. He answered our questions and asked us some of his own but his attention seemed distracted by his hallucination about a beach and a ship. He kept interpolating observations concerning some boat and the davits, and sails filling with the wind. It made one feel queer, in the dusky laboratory, to hear him saying such things. He was blind and helpless. We had to walk him down the passage, one at each elbow, to Boyce's private room, and while Boyce talked to him there, and humoured him about this ship idea, I went along the corridor and asked old Wade to come and look at him. The voice of our dean sobered him a little, but not very much. He asked where his hands were, and why he had to walk about, up to his waist in the ground. Wade thought over him a long time. You know how he knits his brows, and then made him feel the couch, guiding his hands to it. That's the couch, said Wade. The couch in the private room of Professor Boyce. Horsehair stuffing. Davidson felt about and puzzled over it, 
and answered presently that he could feel it all right, but he couldn't see it. "'What do you see?' asked Wade. Davidson said he could see nothing but a lot of sand and broken-up shells. Wade gave him some other things to feel, telling him what they were and watching him keenly. "'The ship is almost hull down,' said Davidson presently, apropos of nothing. "'Never mind the ship,' said Wade. "'Listen to me, Davidson. Do you know what hallucination means?' "'Rather,' said Davidson. "'Well, everything you see is hallucinatory.' "'Bishop Berkeley said Davidson. "'Don't mistake me,' said Wade. "'You are alive and in this room of voices, "'but something has happened to your eyes. "'You cannot see. "'You can feel and hear, but not see. "'Do you follow me?' "'It seems to me that I see too much.' "'Davidson rubbed his knuckles into his eyes. "'Well,' he said, "'that's all. "'Don't let it perplex you. "'Bellows here, and I will take you home in a cab.' "'Wait a bit,' Davidson thought. "'Help me to sit down,' said he presently. "'And now I'm sorry to trouble you, but will you tell me all that over again?' Wade repeated it very patiently. Davidson shut his eyes and pressed his hands upon his forehead. "'Yes,' said he. "'It's quite right. Now my eyes are shut. I know you're right. That's you, Bellows, sitting by me on the couch.' I'm in England again, and we're in the dark. Then he opened his eyes. And there, said he, is the sun just rising, and the yards of the ship, and a tumbled sea, and a couple of birds flying. I never saw anything so real. And I'm sitting up to my neck in a bank of sand. He bent forward and covered his face with his hands. Then he opened his eyes again. Dark sea and sunrise. "'and yet I'm sitting on a sofa in old Boyce's room. "'God help me.' Three. "'That was the beginning. "'For three weeks this strange affection of Davidson's eyes "'continued unabated. "'It was far worse than being blind. "'He was absolutely helpless, "'and had to be fed like a newly hatched bird, "'and led about and undressed. "'If he attempted to move, he fell over things, or struck himself against walls or doors. After a day or so, he got used to hearing our voices without seeing us, and willingly admitted he was at home, and that Wade was right in what he told him. My sister, to whom he was engaged, insisted on coming to see him, and would sit for hours every day, while he talked about this speech of his. Holding her hand seemed to comfort him immensely. He explained that when we left the college and drove home, he lived in Hampstead Village. It appeared to him as if we drove right through a sand hill, it was perfectly black until he emerged again, and through rocks and trees and solid obstacles, and when he was taken to his own room it made him giddy and almost frantic with the fear of falling, because going upstairs seemed to lift him thirty or forty feet above the rocks of his imaginary island. He kept saying he should smash all the eggs. The end was that he had to be taken down into his father's consulting-room, and laid upon a couch that stood there. He described the island as being a bleak kind of place on the whole, with very little vegetation except some peaty stuff and a lot of bare rock. There were multitudes of penguins, and they made the rocks white and disagreeable to see. 
the sea was often rough and once there was a thunderstorm and he lay and shouted at the silent flashes once or twice seals pulled up on the beach but only on the first two or three days he said it was very funny the way in which the penguins used to waddle right through him and how he seemed to lie among them without disturbing them i remember one odd thing and that was when he wanted very badly to smoke we put a pipe in his hands he almost poked his eye out with it and lit it but he couldn't taste anything i've since found it's the same with me i don't know if it's the usual case that i cannot enjoy tobacco at all unless i can see the smoke but the queerest part of his vision came when wade sent him out in a bath chair to get fresh air the davidsons hired a chair and got that deaf and obstinate dependent of theirs widgery to attend to it widgery's ideas of healthy expeditions were peculiar my sister who had been to the dog's home met them in camden town towards king's cross widgery trotting along complacently and davidson evidently most distressed trying in his feeble blind way to attract widgery's attention he positively wept when my sister spoke to him oh get me out of this horrible darkness he said feeling for her hand i must get out of it or i shall die he was quite incapable of explaining what was the matter but my sister decided he must go home and presently as they went uphill towards hampstead the horror seemed to drop from him he said it was good to see the stars again though it was then about noon and a blazing day it seemed he told me afterwards as if i was being carried irresistibly towards the water i was not very much alarmed at first of course it was night there a lovely night of course i asked for that struck me as odd of course said he it's always night there when it is day here well we went right into the water which was calm and shining under the moonlight just a broad swell that seemed to grow broader and flatter as i came down into it the surface glistened just like a skin it might have been empty space underneath for all i could tell to the contrary very slowly for i rode slanting into it the water crept up to my eyes then i went under and the skin seemed to break and heal again about my eyes the moon gave a jump up in the sky and grew green and dim and fish faintly glowing came darting round me and things that seemed made of luminous glass and i passed through a tangle of seaweeds that shone with an oily lustre and so i drove down into the sea and the stars went out one by one and the moon grew greener and darker and the seaweed became a luminous purple-red it was all very faint and mysterious and everything seemed to quiver and all the while i could hear the wheels of the bath-chair creaking and the footsteps of people going by and a man in the distance selling the special pall-mell i kept sinking down deeper and deeper into the water it became inky black about me not a ray from above came down into that darkness and the phosphorescent things grew brighter and brighter the snaky branches of the deeper weeds flickered like the flames of spirit lamps but after a time there were no more weeds the fishes came 
staring and gaping towards me and into me and through me i never imagined such fishes before they had lines of fire along the sides of them as though they had been outlined with a luminous pencil and there was a ghastly thing swimming backwards with a lot of twining arms and then i saw coming very slowly towards me through the gloom a hazy mass of light that resolved itself as it drew nearer into multitudes of fishes struggling and darting round something that drifted i drove on straight towards it and presently i saw in the midst of the tumult and by the light of the fish a bit of splintered spar looming over me and a dark hull tilting over and some glowing phosphorescent forms that were shaken and writhed as the fish bit at them then it was i began to try to attract widgery's attention a horror came upon me Ugh, i should have driven right into those half-eaten things if your sister had not come they had great holes in them bellows and never mind but it was ghastly Four. For three weeks Davidson remained in this singular state, seeing what at the time we imagined was an altogether phantasmal world, and stone-blind to the world around him. Then, one Tuesday, when I called, I met old Davidson in the passage. "'He can see his thumb,' the old gentleman said, in a perfect transport. He was struggling into his overcoat. "'He can see his thumb-bellows,' he said, with the tears in his eyes. "'The lad will be all right yet.' I rushed in to Davidson. He was holding up a little book before his face, and looking at it, and laughing in a weak kind of way. "'It's amazing,' he said. "'There's a kind of patch come there.' He pointed with his finger. "'I'm on the rocks, as usual, and the penguins are staggering and flapping about, as usual.' and there's been a whale showing every now and then, but it's got too dark now to make him out. But put something there, and I see it. I do see it. It's very dim and broken in places, but I see it all the same, like a faint spectre of itself. I found it out this morning while they were dressing me. It's like a hole in this infernal phantom world. Just put your hand by mine. No, not there. Ah, yes, I see it, the base of your thumb and a bit of cuff. It looks like the ghost of a bit of your hand sticking out of the darkling sky. Just by it, there's a group of stars like a cross coming out. From that time, Davidson began to mend. His account of the change, like his account of the vision, was oddly convincing. Over patches of his field of vision, the phantom world grew fainter, grew transparent, as it were, and through these translucent gaps he began to see dimly the real world about him. The patches grew in size and number, ran together, and spread until only here and there were blind spots left upon his eyes. He was able to get up and steer himself about, feed himself once more, read, smoke, and behave like an ordinary citizen again. At first it was very confusing to him to have these two pictures overlapping each other like the changing views of a lantern but in a little while he began to distinguish the real from the illusory at first he was unfeignedly glad and seemed only too anxious to complete his cure by taking exercise and tonics but as that odd island of his began to fade away from him he became queerly interested in it 
He wanted particularly to go down into the deep sea again, and would spend half his time wandering about the low-lying parts of London, trying to find the waterlogged wreck he had seen drifting. The glare of real daylight very soon impressed him so vividly as to blot out everything of his shadowy world, but of a night-time in a darkened room he could still see the white-splashed rocks of the island, and the clumsy penguins staggering to and fro. But even these grew fainter and fainter, and at last, soon after he married my sister, he saw them for the last time. 5. And now to tell of the queerest thing of all. About two years after his cure I dined with the Davidsons, and after dinner a man named Atkins called in. He is a lieutenant in the Royal Navy, and a pleasant, talkative man. He was on friendly terms with my brother-in-law, and was soon on friendly terms with me. It came out that he was engaged to Davidson's cousin, and, incidentally, he took out a kind of pocket photograph case to show us a new rendering of his fiancée. "'And, by the by,' said he, "'here's the old Fulmar.' Davidson looked at it casually, then suddenly his face lit up. "'Good heavens!' said he. "'I could almost swear.' "'What?' said Atkins. "'That I had seen that ship before.' don't see how you can have. She hasn't been out of the South Seas for six years, and before then—' "'But,' began Davidson, and then, "'Yes, that's the ship I dreamt of. I'm sure that's the ship I dreamt of. She was standing off an island that swarmed with penguins, and she fired a gun.' "'Good Lord!' said Atkins, who had now heard the particulars of the seizure. "'How the deuce could you dream that?' And then, bit by bit, it came out that on the very day Davidson was seized, HMS Fulmar had actually been off a little rock to the south of Antipodes Island. A boat had landed overnight to get penguins' eggs, had been delayed, and, a thunderstorm drifting up, the boat's crew had waited until the morning before rejoining the ship. Atkins had been one of them, and he corroborated word for word the descriptions Davidson had given of the island and the boat. There is not the slightest doubt in any of our minds that Davidson has really seen the place. In some unaccountable way, while he moved hither and thither in London, his sight moved hither and thither in a manner that corresponded about this distant island. How is absolutely a mystery. That completes the remarkable story of Davidson's eyes. It's perhaps the best authenticated case in existence of real vision at a distance. Explanation there is none forthcoming, except what Professor Wade has thrown out. But his explanation invokes the fourth dimension and a dissertation on theoretical kinds of space. To talk of there being a kink in space seems mere nonsense to me. It may be because I am no mathematician. When I said that nothing would alter the fact that the place is 8,000 miles away, he answered that two points might be a yard away on a sheet of paper, and yet be brought together by bending the paper round. The reader may grasp his argument, but I certainly do not. His idea seems to be that Davidson, stooping between the poles of the big electromagnet, had some extraordinary twist given to his retinal elements, through the sudden change in the field of force, 
due to the lightning he thinks as a consequence of this that it may be possible to live visually in one part of the world while one lives bodily in another he has even made some experiments in support of his views but so far he has simply succeeded in blinding a few dogs i believe that this is the net result of his work though i have not seen him for some weeks latterly i have been so busy with my work in connection with the st pancras installation that i have had little opportunity of calling to see him but the whole of his theory seems fantastic to me the facts concerning davidson stand on an altogether different footing and i can testify personally to the accuracy of every detail i have given End of section 7You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.